Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here, as always, to talk about stuff. This week on the show, uh, going to be basically continuing a discussion we had last week. Last week we talked about Final Fantasy XV in spoiler-free terms. Yeah, sort I, of like the open world portion of that game. Mm-hmm. And, and really gameplay systems and stuff, which I don't think we're going to follow up on too much this time. Maybe some, because definitely the second half plays with those gameplay mechanics in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So we can talk about that. Um, but mostly this is going to be a discussion of sort of the story and our final reactions and things like that with spoilers. Um, we have some other pieces of news and stuff to talk about. But I do want to do, uh, because I'm sure there are some people who haven't finished Final Fantasy XV, might not listen or haven't played it, might not listen to our full discussion. Yeah. So, again, I think you know some of our thoughts from last week, but we've both played a substantial amount more um, since then. So let's do the spoiler-free takes. Uh, Sean? Now that you've finished the yeah. game, if you had to put it together, what were your thoughts? Um, man, like I have not felt so conflicted about a game since I played Metal Gear Solid Five, and I know like last time on the podcast, like we talked a little bit about like some of the side quest stuff and some of the open world stuff, and maybe the thinness of the story reminded me of that early on. But then, like the deeper I got into the game, in terms of the the split of the game of being like you have this very big open world section. That is the beginning of the game, and then you have this very, like, pretty truncated, quick, linear series of chapters once you leave the open world that leads you through the story. And, uh, like, it's something where I really love a lot of the gameplay systems. I love the open world. I like going around and being in that world and driving and listening to the music and fishing and hunting monsters and doing all that stuff. I love that stuff so much in this game. I love the setting. I love the characters on the face of it and all that stuff. But I think the story is really bad. Like, in a lot of different ways. I think it just doesn't function very well as a story. I think its priorities are in weird places as stories. I think they waste a number of their characters that had a lot of potential. Uh, one, Luna Freyna, I think they fucking ruined that character in a way that, like, really frustrated me. That they, like... I mean, they... spoilers of stuff that happens to that character, but they just waste her really early on. And I just came away very unsatisfied by the story and then actually kind of like a little mad at the story for trying to pull some very like melodramatic emotional moments at the end that I felt they did not earn at all. And so that stuff really turned me off. And then once I got back into the open world, I started doing more quest stuff and I started having fun with that again. And so it's a game that I have a lot of conflicted feelings about. And so it's something where if you are fine with not with like not caring that much about the story stuff, which in the scope of my playtime of the game, the story stuff is like eight hours or something. Like it's pretty small. Like I can recommend this game on its open world stuff, but I don't want to give it a pass on some of the stuff it does with the story. All right. I don't think we've been this split on a game yeah. in a long time. I feel like this is going to be like if on the Metal Gear Solid Five podcast, one of us had really had fallen on the other side of that game. I guess so. Um, I love this game. I love it very much. The thing is, I, I don't think I'm necessarily even going to disagree with you on certain aspects. Um, but this game worked for me. And not just in the open world stuff that I think you and I agree on. Uh, the story worked for me. And I think it's got issues. And I wish some of those issues were worked out. And I can talk about those. But, um, man, I, I thought at its high points, this game worked me over to a degree that uh, no other game has this year. And... I found a lot of it in that second half very powerful. I really liked the linear half. I have very specific thoughts on why I think that works from a game design standpoint. Sure. Um, 
And, yeah, I thought the closing hours were uh, insanely powerful to me, and I really loved the end of this game. And I did go back to the, I've played a lot of this. I actually finished... Uh, I platinumed the game this morning. I got my platinum trophy. Um, took me about 60 hours total of gameplay time. So I have put the game back on my shelf. I'm done with it for now. Uh, although I'm interested to see what they do with some of the DLC. Um, but, yeah, I fucking love this game, and I'm curious to have a conversation about it. Um, and, you know, it's it's a weird... I've been trying to think of how to quantify this. I think, as with any thing you love, it's kind of a warts and all thing. Sure, If yeah. you fall in love with something... I don't know. Um, I, I don't... I, I just I love the overall package, and there are things that are so powerful to me, even if I think there are things that uh, don't work entirely. Um, by the end, so much of that had fallen away to me, and it worked very, very powerfully. So that is my thoughts. Um, so yeah, we'll, uh, and, and the thing is, I was pretty close to the end last time anyway. Yeah, um, I was about thirty-two hours in, and I finished it about thirty-four hours, and you know. So, really, I had one more night of play left, and that was the night that really... I, I really do like the ending of this game, and I like a lot of stuff near the end, so... I do not... Like, there's some stuff about the ending I kind of like. Another thing of my thoughts is also, this game feels really unfinished to me in a number of ways. Like, there are things that happen and places you go to where you're like... Oh, there was going to be a level here, and there is not a level here anymore. Or it's no, like, I... there is going to be another phase of this boss fight. There isn't a phase of this, the second phase of this boss fight anymore. Like, there's, like, there's, I feel like every single step in the way in the second half of that game, it felt like when I played like Knights of the Old Republic two or something. You're like, oh, okay, I see what happened to this game. Okay, I mean, there are parts that I agree with that on, and parts that I don't. So okay, we'll yeah. see. Um, let's go ahead and move into some news and topics and stuff. Speaking of games. One of my stuff things I have this week is about Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. Yes, very good game. But I haven't played it yet. because So I ordered it from Amazon this week because they had the Legacy Edition, which has Modern Warfare in it, uh, yeah. on sale for 50 bucks. So I thought, that's as good a price I'm going to Yeah, that's a good find. price. So I bought that, and uh, it was supposed to come like Thursday. Uh, and I thought maybe I could you know, put Final Fantasy aside for a little bit, play that. We could talk about it on the podcast and have an extra thing to talk about. Anyway, Amazon lost the package, which is like the second or third time that's happened to me in the last month. Huh, that's, which is that's literally never happened to me with Amazon. And when I say lost, like it didn't completely disappear. That has happened to me with Amazon before. Um, but it's just like the tracking like got, they're like, we don't know when it's coming. And like, if oh. it hasn't arrived by this date, we'll give you your money back. So I was totally out in the cold of like, when is this thing coming? It finally came Saturday night. Um, so I didn't have time to play it. So I thought, I will finish Final Fantasy, because I was still working towards my Platinum. And I'm like, when I'm done with that, I'll put that aside, and then I'll play Call of Duty. Um, but I did really quickly open the package just to look at it. And I have to complain about something with this game just from a packaging standpoint. Okay, yeah. Why the bloody hell is Modern Warfare not on its own disc? Oh, right, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's... Okay, so you, you get the game, it's one Blu-ray disc, yes. and a Blu-ray disc can hold a maximum of 50 gigabytes. That game, but you, that, that but package you, is more than 50 gigabytes. But if you turn the game around and look at the back panel of the game, where it has the different, you know, pieces of technical information, it says 130 gigabytes minimum. Yeah. Which means there are 80 gigabytes of this game that are not on the disc, which defeats the purpose of having a disc-based game. To be fair, that's, like, a lot of that stuff I think is, like, for, like... DLC, like that's like like Infinite okay. Warfare and Modern Warfare Remastered combined are not 135 gigabytes on my hard drive. Okay, yeah, like I think it's around 80 gigabytes total of memory. Okay, that's weird that it says that then because yeah. I I did put in the code and started downloading Modern Warfare Remastered and it's 48 gigabytes at least maybe they've patched stuff in I don't know yeah but at this point it's 48 gigs and that should just be a disc like that's big enough like that is the outer limits of what you can even fit on a Blu-ray and it's just like for me that took. 
like 24 hours to download. So it's like, that's why I buy discs a lot for PS4, is PS4 has pretty slow download speeds. Yeah. I don't have a fast internet at my house, so it's like, just put in the disc and play it. And then, so I put in an Infinite Warfare earlier, and it started downloading a, a patch or something. I didn't see how big that was. But, yeah, so I'm glad to hear it's not a full 130. No, yeah. But it is weird that it says that on the package. Yeah. And that, like, that just should be a two-disc game, and it feels like a real rip-off on some level. Like, you're still getting the game, Modern Warfare, that's fine. But just the fact that it's just a code, and <laughs> you need another 50 gigs to download, I don't know. I don't like that about it, and I thought it was funny. Yeah. Because it also shows, like... Boy, we are running up against the limits of what physical media can hold. Unless they get into a more of a mode of we can compress this shit. Yeah. And, you know, so I just think that's funny. Yeah, I no, I've that. completely forgotten that that didn't come on two discs. Because in my mind, it, it is just two discs because that's so obviously what it should be. I, it would be like, you know, I got Bioshock the Collection, and that's two discs. Yeah. It would be like if you got Bioshock the Collection, and it was one disc, and it just had Bioshock 1, and you had to download 2 and Infinite. Yeah, just, yeah, because it is something where, like, Modern Warfare Remastered is about the same size as Infinite Warfare. Like, And they're given, like, equal billing on the packaging. Yeah. Like, it's like half and half of that front cover, and obviously that's a big draw for people. So it's like, and you have to have the disc in if you're playing Modern Warfare. Yeah. Which is kind of extra weird because it's a code, so it's already tied to your account. That's all very strange to yeah. me. It has its own icon on the PS4 homepage. So anyway, that has no bearing on the quality of the game. I'm sure I'm going to enjoy it. I'm actually very excited also to just jump back into Modern Warfare. and like I probably will play none of the Infinite Warfare multiplayer, but I will totally go play some Modern Warfare multiplayer. Yeah, it, for... it is really fun to go back into those maps and run around and be yeah. like, oh yeah, I remember like camping in this corner and sniping people on this map and stuff like that. Yeah, so anyway, I just thought the way they packaged it for you was very confusing. Yeah. But whatever, it happens. It's it's bizarre. Anyway, so that was one thing. Um, did you have any other video gaming stuff to talk about here? No, like all I've been doing is putting time into Final Fantasy XV because that, okay. that, that, that is like another a more minor issue can play with that game. But when you get into the post-game stuff, I feel like the travel time starts weighing on me a little heavier of like... Oh, fuck, just let me, dude, just let me take all these hunting missions. Like, just, yeah. for the love of God, just let me do all of these, because you've got, like, eight of them, and I just want to get to the next hunter rank. Fuck it, just, just let me do all of them. Luckily, there is no trophy associated with hunting, so I was able to abandon that pretty quickly. Yeah, but the thing is that there's a bunch of, like, the higher-ranking hunter missions are all, if you look, they're all, like, unique monsters and stuff. Like, right. the boss fight that should have been on the mountain is a hunter mission where you fight the rock of the rock of Ravitog. Like, I want to fight that thing, but I need to get on a higher hunter mission thing level to get it. Yeah. That is definitely one of the cool things about that game is all the monsters and stuff. They knocked that one, that part out of the park. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, uh, I have one movie to talk about. Okay. And this is not a movie you have probably even heard of, but I wanted to mention it because the way it was presented was so fascinating and I thought it would be of interest to people. So um, you might know, if you read my work or anything, uh, Terrence Malick uh, is one of my favorite directors. An American director made, you know, Days of Heaven and Badlands and The New World and The Tree of Life. Anyway, those are all movies yeah, he yeah. made. He had, a, he had actually had two films out this year, one called Night of Cups, which has been several years in the making and finally came to the U.S. this year. Um, but the other one is one that's been even longer in the making called Voyage of Time, which is this documentary that if you've seen the movie The Tree of Life, there's a portion in that film where it cuts away and does this like 15-minute tone poem about the creation of the universe and the origins of life on Earth. And Voyage of Time is something he's been working on since then, which is like an expanded feature version of that sequence. Um, not using like the same footage. It's different footage, but it's like the same kind of ideas and themes. Right. And 
it finally kind of started trickling out this year, and there are three versions of the film, which is super strange. There's a full feature-length, like, 90-minute version. Then that... there's the version that comes with Tree of Life Remastered. Yes. But that's a download. It's not on a disc, and it's really frustrating. I do think it would be hilarious if he did, like, an extended cut of Tree of Life and just inserted fucking Voyage of Time in that part. And just like, okay, we're going to stop and watch a 90-minute yeah. movie. It's like that like director's cut of Watchmen, Watchmen or whatever, yeah. where they put in the whole uh, Black Voyage thing. Yeah, the Tales of the Black Freighter yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it would be like that. No, so there's a 90-minute version narrated by Kate Blanchett that has only played so far at the Toronto Film Festival. It's never come out anywhere else. And then the wide-ish released version was an IMAX version narrated by Brad Pitt that's called Voyager Time, the IMAX Experience. And I was super annoyed because that movie came out in IMAX on my fucking birthday this year. And I was so excited to see it. And it opened in like 20 cities. And you know what city it didn't open in? Denver. Okay. Even though we have two real IMAX yeah. theaters, one of which is a museum, which would be like the perfect place to play this movie. And for some reason we didn't get it. And I was very pissed off about that back then. Because it's pretty rare that we just get lapped completely by a movie yeah. in Denver. We're a film city. Like, we have film centers and societies and things like that. Quentin Tarantino last shot his last fucking movie in Colorado. Yeah. You know. So anyway, it's weird when we get lapped. But this week they announced that um, Terrence Malick had gone back and created yet a third version of this documentary called Voyage of Time... In ultra widescreen 3.6. Okay, who did he get to narrate this one? Nobody. This one stripped out the narration, so okay. it's just, um, which is apparently what he always wanted, um, and he had to have narration in there for sort of commercial purposes on the other versions. So this one is just sound and music. Okay. But it's the same cut as the IMAX version, which is to say same shot, same shot length, same length of the film, about 45 minutes. Um, but it's in ultra widescreen 3.6 to 1 aspect ratio. Okay. And this is what I thought people might find interesting. So that is the widest a movie has ever been produced at, to my knowledge. Sure. Because if you think of like the widest widescreen you might know of, which is Cinerama, yeah. um, which is what, for instance, The Hateful Eight was shot in. And that came out last year. So you can look at that, and that's the same frame. That is 2.76 to 1. Normal widescreen that you go see, like Star Wars, is in 235 to 1. This is in 3.6 to 1. So that is really fucking yeah. wide. And anyway, they opened it in 21 cities this weekend. Um, and they were specifically bringing it to cities that it didn't come around to last time. So Denver finally got it. And sort of to add insult to injury, they, they played it on our IMAX. <laughs> but we didn't get Did like, the, the IMAX actual thing. full IMAX yeah. version. Um, but I was okay with that. So I went to see it. And this is how much I love Terrence Malick and how um, excited I was for this movie. They were only playing it at 10 p.m. at night, oh, that's once a day. Yeah. Uh, it was on their IMAX, and even though it's a 40-minute movie, they charged full IMAX admission, which is $20. Oh, Jesus. So that is by far the most like dollar per minute I have ever paid for a movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty pricey. Yeah, but I was like, I like, I will, I might never get to see it if I don't do this. So yeah, I'm and like, certainly you would never like see it in that way. You know? Right. Yeah. So anyway, um, I and like the last time I caught a Terrence Malick movie in theaters at all was The Tree of Life in 2011. His next two movies, uh, I missed in theaters because they were out really briefly here, and I, I got them on Blu-ray. So anyway, it was cool to see it that way, but. Um, I was kind of worried before the movie starts because I mean this was the Colorado Center IMAX which is our biggest real IMAX here it's a really cool theater if you've never been there I can't recommend that auditorium highly enough um, except don't go in 3D because they give you super small glasses and the 3D just blurs and you can't see the movie at least if you also have to wear glasses I don't know if that's true but I don't have the option of taking those off because I can't see the movie anyway so um, 
But anyway, I was, before the movie started, I was kind of sizing up the IMAX screen and trying to figure out how much of this screen is this going to take up? Because an IMAX screen is about 1.44 to 1, and we're talking 3.6 to yeah. 1. So this is really wide on this really tall screen. Um, but then the movie started, and I kind of stopped thinking about that. It's very natural, the way it played. Like, it's very wide, and it's wide enough that you cannot take it in just with your eyes. You have to move your head around a little bit and go back and forth. But like the framing felt very natural. It didn't look too thin on the screen like where it looked weird. It just felt like and every shot just felt like that's what it was framed for, right? Like that feels like it's supposed to be this wide. Like I actually think this is a version of the movie that you could really study in terms of photographic framing and composition because it's really well done. And I was reading some interviews and apparently the whole way this came about is that when you watch an IMAX movie of course you can't take in the whole thing. Yeah. It's a really tall frame. And so generally people's attention is brought to one third of the frame at a time. And they were thinking, well, this new really wide aspect ratio is about a third of that frame. So we could really concentrate it and draw your attention to different parts. And so I found it aesthetically just overwhelming. The sound is beautiful. Seeing it on that big IMAX screen, even though it's not filling the full thing, um, it was the perfect way to see that movie. And, you know, beautiful IMAX projection and all that and the sound. And just I thought... That was a, I, you know, I've, literally there's never been a movie in that aspect ratio. And so to see that was really cool and interesting. And I don't think it would work for any other type of movie. Like this film is, as I said, it's about the creation of the universe. And it's, it's, and I'm saying it's about anything. It's like a tone poem. It's an, it is an avant-garde film. Yeah. And I should just say that because it was so bizarre going to a commercial IMAX to see basically an avant-garde short, but because it's IMAX, they were still contractually obligated to show trailers. So before <laughs> this Terrence Malick movie, I saw a trailer for the new Transformers and like a, a Kong Skull Island and a bunch of other awesome. stuff. Yeah. I was like, Good trailers, but it's like... Really bizarre before this specific movie. I'm, I'm sure Kong Skull Island would have made a great double feature for this film. <laughs> Indeed. They should show Voyage of Time as like the short before the yeah. movie. Yeah, no. Actually, I think I might try to go see Kong Skull Island on IMAX because that's the most I've enjoyed that trailer. It looked really Sure, cool yeah. I bet the, the scale of yeah. Kong probably comes across really well. It was really cool. Anyway, but back to Voyage of Time. So anyway, I just thought that aspect ratio was really neat. I even went home after the movie and watched one of the trailers on YouTube which is in its normal aspect ratio. And I saw what they were going for, because you can see the space that they've kind of cut out or elongated or whatever. And I'm like, I actually think framing it that tight, and it doesn't feel tight, but that tightly and really giving you that sense of space was smart. And what I was starting to say is, I don't think you could do this if you had a story like with human representation. Sure. Um, that's actually one of the problems with widescreen in general. If you look at a movie that I don't think is shot very well in widescreen, um, human faces are vertical. They're not horizontal. And often that becomes claustrophobic, uh, not intentionally, in widescreen if you're not careful about it. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think you could really do this if you had like a story with people in it, because I don't know how you would frame that up in this kind of ultra-widescreen. Yeah, it's just a lot of people's heads, and it's all you see is their head, because that's yeah. all that can fit in the frame. And then a lot of empty space. Yeah. But, like, just with these shots of nature and the cosmos and, like, a lot of fish and things like that underwater, oh, it was fascinating and beautiful. And I really hope at some point they do a good DVD package of this with all three versions of the movie so you can compare them. I also want to see what the fuck this would look like on, like, a 16-9 television because it would be mostly right, yeah. black space. But, man, in a theater, this was really cool. If you have a chance to see it um, and you like this sort of adventurous thing. And when I say avant-garde, it's not scary avant-garde like where someone cuts their dick off and feeds it to someone. Sure, yeah. It's like, you know, beautiful, natural, you know, tone poem avant-garde. 
And um, I, I think it's an outstanding film. I think at 45 minutes, it feels very abridged to me. I would love to see the long version. And I kind of wish they had just done the 90-minute version in this ratio for theaters, because it's like... Or, or done something like play the movie twice or something, because sure. at 45 minutes, it is like... Especially for more. 20 bucks, it's, yeah. you're just like, come on. Well, especially because they were playing this on IMAX theaters. I actually thought it would have been cool if they had played it this way first and then done it again at the full IMAX ratio. Yeah. That would have been a really cool way to kind of compare and contrast. Um, but they didn't do that, which is okay. Yeah. But um, I, I felt like, even though it was crazy pricey, I got my money's worth. And you know that's one of the films this year I was most excited to see because I'm weird. And I finally got to see it. And I just want to talk about that. Um, and I like this era we're in where directors are feeling like, fuck it, we're just going to play with aspect ratios. Yeah, yeah, it's like that in, like, directors playing around with frame rate and stuff like that. Like, that's just, it's it's encouraging to see that, that the technology of filmmaking has not just become completely static in the way that, like, I think it, it felt like maybe it was going to be for a while. It's yeah. like, well, we kind of decided on a number of these sort of standards, and we're just going to stick with it, even though... We're like through practical reasons, we're not going to always use film stock in that kind of stuff all the time, and then the, the yeah. ways we project film are changing. It's like I'm I'm glad that they're sort of playing around, or some filmmakers are playing around with that technology. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there, there's another movie coming out that I'm very excited for called La La Land, um, which is this musical. Um, it's it's you know going to win a boatload of Oscars and stuff. But um, that even was shot. It looks like in about two five five to one, which is. Not quite Cinerama, but it was an early form of Cinemascope. Um, there's actually some Disney movies made in that aspect ratio. If you watch Sleeping Beauty or Lady and the Tramp, they were both mm. made at that aspect ratio, which is fascinating for animation. So it's just, it's something that's in the water right now. Yeah. And it's cool, because I almost think like filmmakers are feeling like, especially as theaters just stop giving a shit about aspect ratios, yeah. it's like filmmakers are pushing back and being like, well, if that's the case, then we can do whatever we want. Like, we have a canvas, and it's like, it doesn't matter if the theater isn't built for it, we'll just do it. Yeah, and it'll be cool, and I kind of like that. So anyway, that's neat. Um, if you have the chance to see it, and if you want to stay up until 10 p.m. to go see a 45-minute movie, and the piece de resistance on this entire story is that there were about 10 other people in the theater with me, which was 10 more than I expected. Yeah. At the end, most of them looked confused, and one I was outside just writing down some notes afterward, and a guy came up to me and was like, did they play the right movie? <laughs> and I'm like, that's what I was there for. What were you there for? And he said, well, we were there for something else. I'm not, but that... Wasn't it? But it was kind of cool, so we just sat there and watched it. And I'm like, okay. It's like, we're going to go talk to someone, though. I don't know what... Yeah. <laughs> so it was like ten people, and at least two of them were there by accident. So... It is, it, you know, it's it's a specialist kind of movie. It is it definitely is. the kind of movie that you can like, if someone just stumbled into the, like... Is this, a, is this even a movie? Is this someone's, like, screensaver? <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Indeed. So, that was fun. Uh, so anyway, that takes care of our stuff. Let's go ahead and move on to some of the news. We've got some really fun news to talk about. Yeah. And why don't we just kick it off with the best thing from this past week, which is that Marvel dropped the trailer for Spider-Man Homecoming. Fucking yes, they did. That's a really good movie trailer. It is a great movie trailer. And it's a even better Spider-Man movie trailer. The best thing about this trailer to me, and there's so many things we can pick apart, is it looks so different yeah. than any other Spider-Man movie. Mm -hmm. Because if you go back, like, we all, you know, in the moment it felt like, oh man, Amazing Spider-Man, it's really different than the Sam Raimi movies. But if you really look at it holistically, that was them trying to do Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Yeah. And how it was marketed and everything, it was not drastically different. And I think you realize that when you watch this and it's like, oh shit, this is like 100% different than what we've ever gotten with Spider-Man 
on the big screen. And for a hero, like, you can't say that with, like, Batman. Yeah. Like, because even if the Chris Nolan movies are very different, they're not so different from the Tim Burton movies that you have to say, like, that looks like a different character. Yeah. This Peter Parker looks like a fundamentally different part Peter Parker than Tobey Maguire. And I love that those two can coexist in cinema. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it just feels like watching that... It, it's it's kind of everything they've done with how they've treated Spider-Man when we saw him in Civil War and casting him and all that kind of stuff. Is that it is Marvel comic book Spider-Man on screen the way they've like translated Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, Guardians, like all their other... Doctor Strange now, all these characters. Is they have taken this very back-to-basics approach, looked at the roots of the character, like what was popular about the character, what made the character work in the comic books, and then updating that and translating that for film. And that has been so successful so far is that even people who have, you know, issues with some of the Marvel movies and there are issues to have with like villains and stuff like that, even if I don't have a huge problem with them. Uh, I think everyone agrees that they nail the main character every single time and the hero characters in their movies are iconic and interesting and developed and diverse and, and awesome. And it, like as a huge Marvel Comics fan and as a massive Spider-Man fan in particular, having grown up reading the old, like, Steve Ditko, Stanley Spider-Man comics, watching this on screen and seeing, like, seeing, you know, Peter Parker and uh, Tony Stark together and seeing Peter Parker in high school, in an actual high school setting, looking like a high school kid, talking to people that look like high school kids, <laughs> and saying high school kid things about high school kids, and then and then having, like... Peter Parker being awkward, and then Peter Parker, like, having the, the suit that has the, like, the webbing under the arms, which is the, like, or the original Steve Ditko costume design had that. Like, all that stuff just feels like, fucking, that's Spider-Man, man. Like, that's just that character translated onto the screen for 2016. That's, like, that's what I, as a Spider-Man fan, really want, you know? Yes. I mean, he's a kid in this yeah. trailer, and even though they paid lip service to that in the Sam Raimi and Mark Webb movies, where... Toby Maguire technically films scenes in a high school, yeah. but you never really believe that he's a high schooler. Yeah, the saving grace of that was that that was only like the first act of the first movie, and then yes. they moved him to college, and you're like, okay, I can buy him being a college student. Yes, absolutely. That was fine. Andrew Garfield, where they just, they did the things with like the skateboarding and stuff, and it was so bad. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it just felt like Mark Webb tried to make him like a teenager from when Mark Webb was a teenager, not from like the early 2010s. I mean, here's the difference. Um, Spider-Man Homecoming looks like a John Hughes movie made today. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man felt like him trying to make a John Hughes movie in the 80s, but yeah. made today, and it felt way out of place, yeah. right? Yeah. Like full on with the actors 10 years older than the uh -huh. character. And, you know, today that's not really how we do teenage characters because there are teenage actors who can do that kind of thing. And, you know, Tom Holland is a little older than Peter is in this, but he reads young and he looks young. And, like, just having him, like, in class being bored, yeah. that alone is kind of a powerful image because while we've had Spider-Man on the screen, we've never had that kind of hero in a movie mm -hmm. uh, or in a comic book movie like yeah. this. And that's cool. And then... You know, talking about being in 2016, that's one of the other things I loved in this trailer that I think follows up on stuff from Civil War, where we talked about this when we reviewed Civil War, that one of the great things that movie did is that, like, Peter 
isn't living in like a full house or something like that. Yeah, yeah, he's not uh, living in the suburbs of Queens the way he was in the 60s. Which he could do in the 60s economically. Someone with Peter's economics could not do that today. Yeah. And, you know, Aunt May isn't 80. She's in her 50s, which makes sense. Yes. Things like that. And the other thing I love in this trailer that, that like, adds to that is that the school, one, it looks like a New York school. It yeah. looks like a school in Queens. And two, those are not just kids. They're, like, ethnically diverse kids in yeah. the way Queens would be. Exactly. And that... I think that's almost like revolutionary for movies right now because I think that's still one of the biggest hurdles we have to get over is mixed race casting. Uh And having, you know, you can have characters who are Latino and Asian and black and white all in a school together and so much it's still movies that are like, we're either going to have an all-white cast or we're going to have an all-black cast or something like that. That's not what America looks like. Yeah. And so I really... Like that, that like basically you go to that school in Queens in that trailer, and Peter's the only white kid there, at least that we see so far, and that feels right to me. Yeah, yeah, it, it is like it's it's something that it captures that sort of like modern New York City feel of this. It's like it's all these different kinds of people just sort of like thrown yeah. together, but they, they're like because they're all kids, that like none of it feels awkward or forced or like they're trying to like push a diversity angle. It's just like it is diverse because it is diverse. Like that's. The way New York City is, that's the way these kids are. Like, that's yeah. the environment they've grown up in. It's not like, you know, if you go back and read 60 Spider-Man comics, th- every single kid in that school was white. And I have no idea what the 60s in New York in, like, that neighborhood would have been. I suspect it was not quite that, but... Right. Yeah. So, that's great. Uh, another amazing Spider-Man comparison. I don't want to... It feels like picking on, I don't know, some kid at school who didn't, you know, do very well. Yeah. But... I, you know, we do have to pick on it a little bit because the comparisons are inevitable. But one of them is, like, that first Amazing Spider-Man tried and didn't do very well to do, like, the Spidey voice of him, like, making fun of the villains. And it basically just came off as Peter being a sociopath. Yeah, he was just, like, harassing people more than, like, trying to make jokes. Well, this trailer opens with a little scene where he's stopping a bank robbery and making fun of them. And that felt like Spider-Man plucked off the comic book page or out of one of the animated series. It just felt perfect. Yeah, it was the right kind of like... It's it's like it's a quip that's kind of funny. It's a little bit clever. But it's also like you get the sense of like... It's not that funny. And it's like a little bit awkward in the way that it's supposed to be. In the way that like in the comic books it is. Because he's an awkward teenager who's like... Being able to express himself through being Spider-Man. And here's what makes it for me is that when he's done with that, he like leans over and goes, like, oh my god, that was intense. Because that's what he's masking with all of that, right? Yeah, exactly. It's something that it is a huge difference with the Amazing Spider-Man approach, which I will never understand how some people who call themselves Spider-Man fans were like, oh yeah, this is is my Spider-Man because he's telling jokes. It's like, it's... Spider-Man doesn't just tell jokes. It's like he tells jokes in a very specific way. And the way that they handled it in this trailer with that opening scene of the bank robbers dressed like Avengers, like, I swear to God, watching that scene in the trailer, like, I could see comic book panels with word bubbles in my mind of, like, I've read so many Spider-Man comics that have this exact kind of scene in it, that have these exact kind of jokes, and it's, like, it's so on point with the tone of it. Whereas, like, with Amazing Spider-Man, you know, the big one in that first Amazing Spider-Man movie is, like, the dude who I think was, like, stealing a car or something in Spider-Man just, like, fucks with him for, like, ten minutes or something. It's I just mean, like, dude, lay off. Like, holy shit. I mean, to the point where Spider-Man breaks into the car himself to wait there to quip at the guy. Yeah. Which is not a very Spider-Man thing to do. Yeah, and it's just, like, it, it's, it was, like, a weird, awkward, extended scene where, like, it very quickly pushed over to the territory of, like, 
this is going to end with you just like shoving, like spraying webbing down his throat then killing him, right? Like that's just where this goes. Or using like, like your a, your uh, like sticky hands to just rip his face off or something. You basically, know? what Jack Bauer would do if he had those powers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, that's actually a good segue because they have that little Avengers moment. Even though this movie is being released by Sony, technically, I love how much Marvel is just like rubbing their scent all over it. Yeah, exactly. Like they are, they're marking though, their territory. Even though it says Sony on that trailer, they are not going to let. Anybody forget this is a fucking Marvel movie. Yeah. And it starts with that Avengers stuff. Tony Stark is all over this trailer. And I was impressed by that because I um I assumed it was gonna be a smaller kind of cameo thing. Yeah. But it looks like he's a main character in this movie and like they've really thought out what that relationship is. And I think it looks like a really interesting arc for Peter where Tony is showing up as this kind of father figure almost. Yeah. Uh, and they have this interesting relationship. I, I really love that they're going the distance with that. Yeah, I love the like what the trailer sort of suggests the plot of the movie is that I think is very smart. Of one, I'm so glad that it looks like they are not... They're, I mean, they're obviously not just rehashing the origin story. They're, I suspect there will be reference or maybe a flashback or something at some point just to establish that, like... Yes, this Spider-Man has the Uncle Ben stuff like that mm-hmm. happened. I kind of I like I hope that they do that just because I want that like on the table of like just acknowledging that that happened and that's like part of his origin story and it's the Spider-Man origin story you know. But I like that the story approach they're going for is you know expanding off of um, his role in Civil War of this is like Spider-Man in his early days he's still in high school and before this he was just kind of like almost like an urban legend of Peter Parker was like doing that on his off time. And he didn't have much of a costume. And he was just kind of like doing what he could. And then now after getting the nice suit and meeting Tony Stark and doing all the Civil War stuff. And becoming like nationally recognized because of the, the like YouTube footage of the Civil War fight. That he's trying to kind of hit it big time as a hero in some ways. That it's like he wants to get out there. He wants to like really make a difference. And this is like his story of him butting up against his first supervillain which is the Vulture. And like having to sort of prove himself as being a hero and not just a kid and it looks like that's kind of the relationship he has with Tony Stark in the, the trailer at least is Tony like kind of like trying kind to of keep him under his wing but also keep Peter like kind of down and Peter was like no like I'm I can do this like I have this power I have this responsibility like I can I can stand up to this stuff and I can really make a difference I can be like you guys I can be in the Avengers yeah I, I love that you can see so many different like influences yeah. from Spider-Man history on this. Like, um, I feel like I see a lot of the spectacular Spider-Man TV show in yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly Which, in the ways that it's like feels modernized. Yeah, it feels a lot like how that show handled it. That show also, its its first villain is the Vulture. Yeah, not true. that that yeah. matters, but that's just kind of funny. Uh, and then also, like the I haven't seen a lot of it, but I want to watch more of it. The Ultimate Spider-Man TV show. Yeah, Which is yeah. pretty good. Like, it, it's slow to start, but there's a lot of really good stuff in it. And that also has kind of a similar thing where Spider-Man is starting to make it big time. And then the Avengers come in. That one's it's Nick Fury that comes in. But it's like, all right, Peter, we're going to see if you can kind of go big time with this. And I kind of like that as a setup. Yeah. I don't think it works entirely in that show, at least in the early going. But I think it's an interesting idea. So I just like a lot of those different sides that you see here. And, yeah, I just... I think it's kind of interesting that Robert Downey Jr., it's looking like he probably will never do another solo Iron Man film but he's content to just show up in other people's movies yeah and weirdly it's bringing out new sides of tony stark not weirdly but like i think we're seeing more of that character than we would have gotten if we just kept doing solo movies yeah because he can as being a supporting character he can occupy a different role of like having this like father figure thing is not a a plot i would ever expect a mainline iron man movie to have tried to tackle but it does put him 
in a different light. And it's something like in particular, you know, they have such a great chemistry and we know that from Civil War. But like one of the moments in the trailer that just like, I've, I've like, I watched this trailer like three times in a row because really I've been fucking, you know, that's the guy I am. But it's like every single time I got to the scene where Robert Downey Jr. reaches over Peter Parker to like go open the door, but Peter thinks it's a hug and hugs <laughs> him. It's like, no, this isn't a hug. I'm just opening the door for you. Like that is such a fucking pitch perfect scene of their relationship and of Peter Parker being this like awkward social teenager person and like fucking Tony Stark not giving a fuck like because you know that Tony used to be that awkward social guy and then now he's like moved to where he can be just eccentric and weird and fun and it's like I like seeing that dynamic it's great um yeah I love all of that and I love that Robert Downey Jr. is willing to do this with the character because it's like you know, can you imagine, I mean, this was a real problem with the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, is that when the main cast left, they just decided, all right, Johnny Depp will be the main character all the yeah. time. Could you imagine Johnny Depp going like, I'll just step aside and keep being a supporting character? Yeah. He would never do that, even though it would be better for the movies. I love that Robert Downey Jr. is willing to say, yeah, I don't need to be the main character in this movie. I can give this performance and do good work. And yeah. that's a really cool, and I know he's getting paid tens of millions of dollars. It's still a cool thing. Yeah, but like, so. yeah, that like. Because you would expect there to be a bigger ego thing in there of like, yeah. no, like, let me have me be top billing, like, give me all my own movies and all that kind of stuff. And it does feel like, you know, while while he's prominent in these trailers, like, you'd still get the sense of like, he's very clearly like a supporting character in Spider-Man's movie, not the other right. way around. And, you know, I, I think it speaks clearly to how he and I think a lot of the other actors in the MCU... I think relish this as an acting opportunity because they get to create these big characters and explore them from all these different angles. And I think that's probably really fun for an actor. And you get paid tens of millions. It's kind of the best of yeah, both worlds. And then everyone loves you and like you get to go like, you know, like children will run up to you in the street <laughs> and like, it's like, it's Iron Man. Like, I can only imagine that has got to be like the most satisfying feeling in the world to like basically be a superhero in real life to a bunch of people. Like, that's got to yeah. be, that's got to feel pretty good. It, indeed. So... This looks so cool. We get one short glimpse of Michael Keaton in this. We see yeah. the vulture quite a few times, but we only get one shot of Michael Keaton like out of the suit. So can't really judge that yet, but I just love that Michael Keaton is yeah. in this. It's like it's such a great actor to get as a villain in a Marvel movie. It is like yeah, like you do get like that one shot of him, but it, like you see that shot, it's like, okay, yeah, like He's gonna fucking be awesome. I'm it's, I'm excited for that. It's awesome, and, and it's just a great you know piece of like superhero history, having him come full circle and do this. I love that Michael Keaton is willing to do this, because you know one of his last big movies was Birdman, which is very much kind of mocking the whole idea of the superhero yeah. thing, but I love that he was able to turn around and be like, Okay, it, sure, do- yeah, I, will, I played Birdman, now I'll play the Birdman. Like, <laughs> I played this Bat- is- Batman, Birdman, Vulture. He's got, like, maybe it's just a joke that he yeah, finds Yeah, it's just funny. like winged animals, like, that's my thing now. You know, this is my whole role. Maybe if they ever do Hot Guy in the DC movie, yeah, yeah, Hot Man, or or they do like the Hanna Barbera Birdman cartoon as a movie. (laughs) He can do the voice. Yeah, Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law, the film, like the the live action feature film. I can imagine that being turned into like a real Oscar contender, like Michael Keaton in that. Anyway, yeah. So this movie looks great. Yeah, yeah. Then like the one last thing on the trailer is I love it's it's a reference to. Like a like the classic, but mo- my favorite Spider-Man trope of Spider-Man having to use his power to just overcome an intense physical obstacle, and it, it, like it's immortalized on film in the Spider-Man Two train sequence. And then now I like they ended the, the this trailer with him doing that with the boat and holding it together with the webbing. Yeah, 
Always it's good. Just it's just like it's it's it felt like this whole trailer was designed to just be like, hey, Sean. We're making the Spider-Man movie you want. And, like, every single shot is just, like, another thing of I want in my Spider-Man movie. And then it, like, ends with, oh, yeah, and we're doing the fucking dope Spider-Man thing, too, with him, like, trying to, like, save all these people from, like, this big disaster. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm, 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 I was already going to see the movie, but I am insanely excited to see this movie now. Gonna be great. I mean, God, next year with Marvel, we have Thor... Ragnarok, we have Spider-Man Homecoming, and we have Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah. That's going to be a real good year. Yeah, that is, a, that is a hell of a lineup. Yeah, so very excited. Also love the choice of music in this uh, yeah. trailer. It's the MGMT song, Kids, I think. Uh, but anyway, it's a great song that I feel is like criminally underused in things like this, because it's just so good for that kind of yeah. mood. It's so, kind of like when we watch the Logan trailer, yes. you're like, how is this song not used in every trailer for this kind of movie? It's it, such a perfect song for this kind of movie. It is. So, yeah, some good superhero trailers recently. Yeah. It's a weird thing. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and move on. And one more trailer that I wanted to talk about, just because I find this so fascinating. They released the first trailer for the new Planet of the Apes movie, which is a War for the Planet of the Apes. And, I, you know, you haven't seen these yet, right? No, no. You really should. The, the new Planet of the Apes movies are so good, and they're so weird because they, like, lean hard into the silliness of this story of like the apes are building societies and they've got guns and you know the Andy Serkis character Caesar is learning to talk and things like that so if you just take it on like face value they are ludicrous fucking movies but they've done them with this like seriousness and artistic passion to it that you never laugh at it even though you kind of should and I think Rise of the Planet of the Apes the first one was very good had some issues Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is fantastic it's got some issues near the end, but like on a visual level and like tonally, it's just so. It's like a kind of like a big art movie, but with CGI apes and stuff, and it's fascinating. And um, War for the Planet of the Apes is the same director who did the second one coming back, Matt Reeves, um, who's worked with J.J. Abrams on TV shows. He did the Cloverfield movie. He did the remake of Let the Right One In, which is criminally underrated. That's a really good remake. That if you haven't seen it, you should. It's sure, really yeah. good. Like, my um, only problem with that was, like, I started watching it and stopped after, like, the first 15 minutes because I think I tried watching it too close okay. after watching Let the Right One In for the first time. Yeah. And, like, those movies, like, it is a it is a very straight remake, at least no, at it, the beginning. Yeah, it is. And I, you know, but I also feel like it's just so artistically made. Like, sure. it's so not the dumbed-down version of that remake. So sure, all I'm saying sure, is yeah. maybe we don't need that movie, but it was really well made is all I'm saying. Um but anyway, this War for the Planet of the Apes trailer is really good, and I love that they feel like they're leaning even harder into the like super seriousness of it, and being able to lean into that while also not dumbing down that this is apes like wielding machine guns and shit and riding yeah. horses. Being able to do both of those things is this crazy magic trick, and like this movie, I don't know, it just looks really cool, like visually and everything, and like the this, the ape CGI is still pretty much the best use of special effects I've ever seen in a movie in terms of they're just so convincing, and like Andy Serkis is full on monologuing in this, so like Caesar has fully learned to talk. He only I think he only said like one sentence in the first movie. He talked like four times in the second, and now he's giving full monologues. And then this also has a really badass use of Woody Harrelson, okay. where he's like the leader of the human resistance. Was he in the second one? No. Okay. Basically, the human cast is different every time. Okay. Like, the apes are very much the main characters. Like, that's the most amazing thing, is that the human characters are actually really forgettable in the first and second movies, and maybe they can fix that this time. But it's almost like that's intentional because the apes are the main characters. Like, half of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is just done in sign language subtitled. Because that's how the apes communicate. Cool. 
So stuff like that. So I just think this looks really neat. There's there's a pretty badass shot where Woody Harrelson is like giving a big speech and it cuts to him like shaving his head as he's getting ready for battle. And I was like, I can dig this. Sure, yeah. And you know, it even this is how good these movies are that it ends with the ridiculous line. If we lose tonight, then this truly will become a planet of the apes. They title drop in this fucking trailer? They Holy do. shit. But it, this is why you have to see it and see the movies. It works. Like, if you've seen the other ones and you stick through this trailer and look at what they're doing, like, aesthetically, when he says that, you should burst out laughing and you don't. And that's a weird thing. So I just wanted to mention that because I found, like, I don't think these movies... Like, clearly they're very acclaimed and everything. I don't know if they're getting quite the attention they should for just how, I think, out there they've been going in trying to really rethink how you do this kind of summer blockbuster. And also, like, you know, remaking Planet of the Apes. We know that can go very wrong. Yes, it can. I have seen that movie. So, yeah, these are cool, and I think that was a cool trailer, and I just wanted to mention it because I will totally watch... Woody Harrelson and CGI ape Andy Serkis go toe to toe. Sure, yeah, I like that. Those two movies are ones I've been meaning to get around to for a very long time because I love the original Planet of the Ape movies. Like not even just the first one. Like its sequels are silly, but they're my kind of silly. So yeah, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll get around to these at some point. Yeah, they're you know the first two aren't perfect, but the second one is definitely better than the first. And I think if they follow that up, because this really looks like it's maybe not the last one they're going to make, but it's the big like conclusion to this story arc. I think it could be really special. Awesome. So, yeah. Um, one other piece of movie news. The trailer, as we're recording this, is not out yet for this. It's dropping tonight, so by the time you listen to this, it'll be out. Um, but they announced they're going to release the trailer for the new Fast and Furious. Of course, which yeah. up, up until now has just been called Fast 8. Yeah, I, mean, I assume that's just going to be the title of the movie, you know. But it's not. So when they announced they were doing the teaser, they announced the new title for this film. Oh, but it's the, the Fast and the Furious 8, right? Like, surely that's just what it is. It's called The Fate of the Furious. What? I okay. Let's let's do the game where we try to name every Fast and Furious movie up to okay, now. Okay, I mean this is good because you've seen. Have you seen all of them? Uh, all but two. Okay, because I, I have seen none of them. Okay, can you do any of them? Uh, it's the Fast and the Furious, Too Fast, Too Furious, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. That was actually still the Fast. That and Fast the- and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Okay, then the fourth one is. Rise of the Fast and the Furious. The fourth one is just Fast and, and Furious. Fast and Furious. Then it's Fast Five. Yes. Then it's Furious Six. Is that what that movie is actually called? Or is it's that called my Fast and Furious Six. But in the movie, it's called Furious Six. Okay, so I think that counts. Yeah. Furious Six. And then now it's no. There's a seventh one. Fast the the Fast the the seventh. It's called Furious Seven. What? <laughs> but in the movie, it's spelled out Furious S E V E N. So that's okay. the difference there. I can't believe I totally missed a whole one. Yeah. Furious. So this is the eighth yes. one. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. And this one's just called The Fate of the Furious with Fate no number. Okay. And here's my favorite shit. thing about this: ever since the fifth movie, so five, six, seven, and now eight. Every single one has been pitched in marketing as, like, it's the last movie, and even builds up to a big final scene where it's like they all get together and hug and it's the end of the film. Like, Fast Five ends with, like, Dom and um, the, the the other character, oh, God, what's his name? The, the cop who, the, the actor died. Um, um, Paul anyway, Walker's character. Paul Walker's character. Yeah. Um, they, like, get in the car and they start to race again and it cuts so you don't see the end of the race. And it feels like, that's a good ending, right? 
And then Furious 6 ends with them all like having a happy dinner together. And it's like this was one last time we did what... Even that movie had on like the, the title or on the poster. It was like one last ride. And yeah. even though they had no intention of that being the end of the series... So this means that this is the third movie they're making after Paul Walker has died? No, no, no. Uh, first. Because Fury... First? Okay, so uh, I'm not... Done. So Furious okay. 7, that's the one where he died in production on Furious okay. 7. Okay. Um, so he died in production on that, so he's in the movie, but they had to do like digital recreations and stuff. Okay, so but so he's he was he's all in six. He's in five, six, and seven. He's okay. in all of those. Okay. Yeah. But seven ends with the farewell to that character. Okay. So that one also feels like it's the last movie. And now they're calling the eighth one the fate of the Furious, which makes it sound like it's the last movie. And the tagline for this movie is "All roads lead here." So literally four films in a row, they've marketed it as this is the end. And they have already greenlit nine, and Vin Diesel says they're going to make at least ten. So, like, there's no way this is the end, but they keep marketing them like they're the last movie. All roads lead here. They've had it planned the entire time. Vin Diesel, the the mastermind behind the franchise, has been maneuvering around directors and studios and writers to get his vision of this epic blockbuster action racing franchise of, of this 12-part series <laughs> that he has been designing the entire time. He, he For is, which he was not even in two of the movies. I mean, that was part of his original plan when he came up with this when he was 13. Indeed. So, I just... And I, I say this all lovingly. I love these movies. Five, six, and seven are so good. The first one, I think, is better than people remember. And the other ones are okay, but like it's been it's been so good for so long, and I'm very excited for this one. But I still think it's funny that they're once again going with the "this is the last movie" thing, even though, even though they have other movies already greenlit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they did before. Like uh, eight was actually supposed to come out, or no, seven was supposed to come out just one year after six, and then of course it had to be delayed because of Paul Walker's death. Um, but like, so they've they've been on this track for a while. So anyway. Um, but it looks good. I'm excited to see what the crazy trailer is going to be. I just but... hope it's that like they somehow all get transported to like medieval fantasy times or something, <laughs> and just it's basically like Fast and the Furious Army of Darkness. Like that's just what I want. There's going to have to come a point where they have to go like super ludicrous with yeah, it, like right? or like Jason X, like they go into space. You know, <laughs> like they they're like. There's only so many action car movies you can make that are just set in like contemporary Earth. You know, because basically they did five was a heist movie. Six was like a car action movie where like they're doing they had the car battles with this evil dude played by uh, Bard the Bowman from The okay, Hobbit, yeah. Luke Evans. And then the seventh one was like a revenge movie because uh, the the Jason Statham character was killing off their friend, so they had to go get him. But then it's like, well, what do you do with the eighth one? Do you like just go back to street racing? But now like someone has like some doodad that will destroy the world, and I don't know. They have to take the one car to a mountain. <laughs> And cast it into the fires of this one volcano because the Dark Lord of Automobiles, and who forged the car in the ancient times, is trying to get it back. And if he gets it, uh, like the world will be destroyed. I think that's the plot of this one. This one is directed by uh, F. Gary Gray, who directed Straight Outta Compton. I think okay. they should totally do at some point like a fucking rap musical, Fast and Furious. That just would... doesn't even have cars in it. Like it's just all about rapping. That would be great. Like, the Vin Diesel character decides he's got to get into the rapping scene. I've got to get into the rapping scene. So he, like, goes back to the streets of... I don't even know where they're from. I guess they're from L.A. That can work. Sure, yeah. He, yeah, you know, a bunch of white kids rapping, and Vin Diesel decides he's going to show them all up. 
and like he wears a bandana and tries to look 30 years young, younger, it would be great. Yeah, I'm just looking forward to this franchise running long enough that eventually they just straight up do a crossover into Guardians of the Galaxy and have Vin Diesel interact with Groot. <laughs> I mean, they're going to go to like at least 10 movies. This is like officially our James Bond. Like, this has become America's James Bond, sure. and I kind of love it. Like... And they've even gone longer, though, with, like, the same cast. They will go, like, ten movies with fucking... I guess Vin Diesel wasn't in two and three. But still, like, it's kind of an amazing thing that this specific series has gone on this long. Yeah. And has weirdly gotten better and better. Yeah. So is this movie, or is the last movie the first one that is set after Tokyo Drift? Because it wasn't Tokyo Drift when it came out. It was set in the future... Well, it wasn't when it came out. They decided But, but there later. was like yeah. a character that dies or something in 3 that then is alive in the next movie, yes. right? Yeah, so the character that dies in 3, Han, is alive in 4, 5, and 6. Okay. Is killed in the like post-credits tag of 6. And then 7 starts, like it intersects with Tokyo Drift. And that's where it picks up again. So yes, Tokyo Drift is like 4 films ahead in how they redid the lore. There's right. even a great nod to it at the end of um, 5, I think, where Han... And his girlfriend, who's played by Wonder Woman, um, are driving off. And she says, are we going to go to Tokyo now? And he says, we'll get there, baby. We'll get there. It's great. So, And I hope they do something like where they bring Han back to life. I, I just want character. them, after this, they just make Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift 2. Like, that's just <laughs> what I want so much. If you ain't out of control, you ain't in control. Exactly. I mean, that is, it is the... the Tagline, it is the credo that the franchise has been made by, both in the characters in the movies and the people making the movies. I don't know how many times my brother and I have said that quote to each other while playing Forza Horizon 3 online. Because whenever you like spin out and you're like angry, you just say that and then you laugh and you're happy again. I feel like they made like a Fast and Furious DLC for like Forza Horizon 2 at some point. It's like man. Anyway. Uh, Alright, so that's movie stuff. That yeah. was fun. Let's talk about some video game stuff. Okay, video uh, game stuff. Two pieces of Nintendo news. So, one of these is a report about the Nintendo Switch, but it's from Eurogamer who broke the exact specifications of the Switch, like, yeah. a year ahead of time. Yeah, it seems so, very reliable. To yeah, me. I think we can trust them. And they're saying, there were, their sources are telling them that one of the first orders of business for the Switch uh, when it launches is they're going to have a virtual console that will include, among other things... GameCube games. Yeah. And that's been something people have been asking for forever. Yeah, it makes um, a huge amount of sense. Like, the console is, should be more than powerful enough to emulate yeah. GameCube games. And um, GameCube games is the one holdout on the Wii U. You can play pretty much every other... Uh, across the Wii U or the 3DS, you can play pretty much every other Nintendo console other than, like, the Virtual Boy. Or, sure, yeah. or like, Game & Watch cartridges. But um, they haven't had GameCube yet. And they're saying, like, they're going to launch with... You know, Melee, Mario Sunshine, Luigi's Mansion, some of the big ones, they'll get more, you know, going. Um, And it's really cool. Like, for one, I love the idea of not only being able to play virtual console games, but specifically GameCube games on the go with the Switch. Yeah. That sounds really neat. And someone was pointing out, like, that will, if they really have Melee on there, like, day one, that's going to, like, revolutionize esports. Because Melee is still a big esports game, even though it's very hard to play an esports, you know, things because you can only play it on a GameCube unless you're doing emulations, which kind of changes yeah, some specifications. Yeah, they're not do that. Um, so having it that way, like, you know, that game is going to come back into prominence, clearly, and it's cool. Like, because I, I love the new Smash Bros, but hey, I'll always play some Melee. It's a good game. Fucking yeah. So I love that. They're also saying that the plan is to have the other virtual consoles from the Wii U brought over with the same kind of thing they did Wii to Wii U, where you will... They'll track which games you had, and either they'll give them to you for free or maybe a dollar upgrade for each one. 
Um, so it's that stuff will carry over, which I'm very glad to hear about because I have a pretty big virtual console library for the Wii U. It's probably my favorite thing about the Wii U is how it handles all of that is really good. So it seems like they're committed to building on that for the Switch, which I think is really smart because if anyone's got a catalog to leverage, it's Nintendo. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. And I just love, you know, GameCube has been like the holdout and there's a lot that should come over. And, you know, some of those games have been, like, remade, like Wind Waker, but some of them haven't, like Melee and Mario Sunshine and things like that. So yeah. there's a lot of cool stuff they could do. Yeah, no, the GameCube has a really strong library of games, you know? Like yeah. It's, it's smart of them to keep that backwards compatibility stuff in, in the virtual console format, which is, you know, a little different than just being able to put in a little tiny baby GameCube <laughs> disc into your Switch and let it go. But Yep, as, hey, as long as it has that startup sound, I'm good. That's Fucking the best yeah. thing. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, Man, the boot of animation on the GameCube is so good. It's so good. I, I hope the Switch has something crazy like that. Yeah. That would be so good. But um, it, 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 what it really indicates to me more than anything is that Nintendo is really committed to getting this thing out the door with a strong lineup, not just of new games, but just things on the device, like Virtual Console and GameCube, so that it's really compelling. And I love the idea of that. Yeah. You know, because the, the Wii U and the 3DS both launched very sparsely in terms of what you could play on there, and that was a problem. Yeah. So... The Switch probably won't have that problem, and that's good. Yeah, like if Nintendo just cannot get third-party people to make games on their system, they just have to put every single game they have on, on all of their systems. and that, that will be enough video games for a lot of people. Oh, it's, it's absolutely enough, so that'll be fun. Um, one other piece of news, I'm, uh, there was that interesting thing where they went on Jimmy Fallon, and uh, Miyamoto was there, and so was Reggie, and they played the Switch a little bit. And that was cool just to see the Switch kind of in the wild, yeah. and you could see more sides of it. You had where, yeah, where you know that it's not like an edited trailer where they're like, you know, like digitally adding the screen onto like a probably yeah. piece of cardboard or something. Well, and that was the first time we'd seen specifically Breath of the Wild running live on a Switch, yeah. and it looked beautiful, so that's good to know. Um that was neat, kind of fun to see that. And then it was also neat to just see like the actual dimensions of the thing held in someone's hands. Yeah, that's not like shot yeah. in such a way that you can't get a good reference point. Right. So like it's clearly not, you know, as felt as an iPad or something, but it looks compact and yeah, yeah. good. So that's nice. Uh, but they also did some showed off some things about Super Mario Run. That game looks surprisingly good, and I want to talk about that in a second. But the big news that's disappointing is Super Mario Run, which comes out next week, December 15th. Right, so, Jeez, yeah. Um, I'm at least going to get it, and we can talk about it next week. Yeah, but... I'll, 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 I'll see what people say about it. If people really, okay. really like it, I might pick it up, too. Well, it's, you can, it's free to start. So sure, yeah, that's you true. You can just download it and see if you like it. Um, but anyway, uh, the one piece of news that's disconcerting about this is that it's an always-online game. Right, You yeah. have to be connected to the internet to play this, and I... Nintendo does not know what the internet is. I'm just pretty sure at this point they don't know what it is. Because it makes so little sense, especially for a mobile game, which the appeal of it is you can just play it when you're on the bus or something, yeah. or at home, or when you don't have cell phone coverage or something. Yeah, like on an airplane. You know? Yeah. And, and that's always been the appeal of like the DS and the 3DS and all that stuff, and even the Wii U. Like The Wii U is the system I play on Christmas Day when the PSN and Xbox have been hacked and are down. Right. You know? So it's like, that's one of the really nice things about Nintendo systems and games, and I, it's so bizarre that they would do this with Mario Run... Like a game that, in no, on the face of it, in no way should demand an internet connection. Like, there's, I know there's some like online stuff that they do, yeah. but like well, the core game does not need to be connected to the internet to function. It's very much the problem I have with uh, Hitman on, yeah. on on the PS4 and Xbox One, which is that it has a lot of cool online functionality where they add stuff in and they give you objectives and all that. 
it doesn't have to be always online for that. Yeah, yeah. That's what I don't like, is that it could do that in between play sessions and whatnot, and you could build it in that way, and I'm sure they could do that with Mario Run, but they've decided it's just more convenient to have a blanket always online, and that is inconvenient. And, look, I'm looking forward to this game. I am. It's specifically something I am saving a... Like, I want to play this before I make my top ten. Oh, okay. Not yeah. because I, like... I think it's an outside chance, but this is technically a new Mario game. It looks to me like they've kind of cracked how to do this kind of game on a mobile device. And it's specifically, like, levels were designed by Miyamoto himself. Like, they got all the Mario people who have worked on games, you know, in the past and in the last ten years to come and just build levels for this. And journalists have played it, and they say, you know, it's really creative for this kind of thing. So I'm very excited to play it. That does make me a little sad of, like, you know, the always online thing is just... That's never a good phrase unless it's yeah. a game that has to be online. Yeah, like, if it's, like, Destiny or World of Warcraft, it's like, well, yeah, fucking shit. Obviously, this game has to be yeah. connected to the internet. Hearthstone. Yeah. yeah. You know, but, like, yeah, this is the kind of thing that I want on my phone so I can just play it whenever. Mm-hmm. Not when I have specifically reliable coverage. Yeah. So, anyway... That's too bad. I, I made a funny tweet about this where I just said, one day Nintendo will gain enlightenment and learn what the internet is, and we'll all look back at these dark times in disbelief, but for now we are still living in the dark times. So yeah. I've, I do not necessarily have faith that they will ever figure it out. Like I don't think that Nintendo's going away. I'm just looking forward to being like 70 years old and being like, Oh, like, Jonathan, what's your friend code on Super Mario Brothers 5000? <laughs> they brought these things back. Don't you love these? <laughs> Yeah, that would be the funniest fucking thing if at their Switch announcement in January they start with friend codes. Yeah, back. yeah, that's like their Nintendo Direct is like, and we've brought back a feature from our old consoles that we know diehard fans have been missing for a long time now. That's right, say it with me, folks. Friend codes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure so- they would get like lynched. Yeah. <laughs> Live on the internet. All right, so that's the news. Any other stuff with all of that you want to talk about? No, you know, like the, the Switch keeps on looking better and better every time we see it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm getting pretty hopeful about that console. Yeah, and I'm hopeful for that. I'm hopeful for Mario Run. I think it sounds cool. So, yeah, cool Nintendo stuff. Let's go ahead and talk about a very different game. Yes. Yeah. From just about any game. You can really say that in comparison to just about anything. Uh, Final Fantasy XV. Yes, the, the old XV. Yes, so from this point on, there be spoilers. Yes. Um, yeah, so we gave our overall thoughts early on. Um, hope this doesn't get too heated or anything. I respect your point sure, of view. Yeah. Hopefully you respect my point of view. I've, we'll see once we, we get into this. <laughs> Alright. Where do you want to start, Sean? Oh, man. Um, well, let's, I guess let's start with like, like reiterating a bit of like that the structure of the game. Because it is very unique and it's a bit strange. And it's something we talked about a little bit. Uh, last week's podcast because you had already you were deep into the linear section yeah. and you were talking about how it is it's like it's easy to call it two halves it is like not actually two halves in terms of like playtime but yeah. it is like the game is structured in chapters and what is it the first eight chapters are all in this big open world with chapter three literally just being called open world which I've always I really, I kind of wish that like that whole section was just chapter three and they just it was just called open world the whole time. Because, like, that would be kind of amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... Yeah, so Chapter 9 is when you go to Altissia, which is this um, city outside of Luchus. Specifically, the open yeah. world is the Kingdom of Luchus, which is Noctis's kingdom. And then you go into the larger world of Eos, is what it's called. And Altissia is one of the cities there. And so the linear sections, Chapters 9 through 14, is sort of this, like, 
uh, tour through these various places as Noctis and his friends are specifically trying to get to the capital of the, of the Empire, yeah. where they're going to find the crystal, um, and then eventually with the goal of reclaiming the, the city of Insomnia back in Luchus. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. They're fun. they're as the last mission likes to tell you, it is they are searching for the cure for insomnia. I, I look, we have to talk about that. It's the fucking puns in this game get and they, out of control. They get worse near the end. It's, it's yeah. bizarre. When, like like even more... even if I don't like the story, I at least recognize that it is a dramatic story. And like having like this big dramatic sequence at the end with like a lot of like character drama and then the fucking like screen fades to black and then I see like chapter fourteen a cure for insomnia pop up with my experience tallying. I'm like, oh fuck off. What is with the puns in this motherfucking video game? Yeah, the localization just went way the hell overboard. And like it's not just puns in the last few hours. They start having Prompto just drop movie references. Yeah. And things yeah, like that. Where that he's one, just yeah. quoting movies and shit like that. And I just... Like, and part of it was because I became acutely aware of it after you and I talked. But I think even then, I think they really go into overdrive. And I don't get it. Whatever you think about the story, I think in Japanese it has a pretty clear sense of tone. Yeah. And, no, and who yeah, the characters sure, are yeah. and what their voices are. And I... I uh, and, you know, I, I I heard some of the English voices over the weekend because I was doing some hard stuff in the endgame and I needed to look up videos. And, of course, most of the people playing this on YouTube playing it in English. Yeah. Uh, the voice acting is horrible. I, I don't know what to say about it. It's so off from what I think those characters are. And I think in Japanese there is some tremendously powerful voice acting in this game, especially near the end. Like the actor who plays Noctis. Just, yeah, he's very, very good. He's very good and he does some great stuff. Um... And I, you know, I heard him in English, and he's like a flippin', like, they really went with just the stereotypical look of the character, not who the character is beyond that. Right. Like, he sounds like just a member of NSYNC or something, and it's just, it's so off from what that character is. It, I really think if you're playing this only in English, you're really missing out on, on you know, for better or for worse, what the game is trying to be. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it, but it's unfortunate that, like, it's not just the voice acting, like, the yes. subtitles are pretty deficient. Like, there's a couple of, I mean, literally, like, the it's they don't ruin it, but the last line in the game is Noctis looking at his friends and saying, I love you guys. Yes. And they translate it as, you guys are the best. And it's like, those are not the same fucking thing. Like, they are similar lines. They do not mean the same thing. Like, I could not believe that they translated that line that way. Oh, there's another, I mean, there's, I, I, I really love the end of this game, and I think there's some really powerful moments of acting where, you know, the, one of Noctis' last lines before he takes the throne, for instance, in that final scene, is he says to everyone, um, you know, arigato, basically. He says, yeah. thank you, guys. And, and for that one, they translated it the opposite way, where he says, I love you all, in English. Yeah. And that's another one where, not that that's, like, a bad sentiment, it's just, like, that's supposed to be a really reserved, he's becoming the king. Like, he's literally, he's saying it in a regal, stately way. And the counterpoint to that is the scene you're talking about where yeah. he says, I love you. And yeah, where he opens up at they, the end. Yeah. They totally mistranslated these things and like swapped it around. I, I don't know what the English localization team was doing with this game. And I don't know if anyone on like, the Japanese development team talked to them and was like, What the fuck are you doing with my game? Why does Noctis call Ignis Specs? Yeah. Why is Prompto dropping fucking puns and movie references everywhere? Why did you call our last mission the cure for, for insomnia, insomnia when you have ridiculous city names, as Final Fantasy often does? Yeah. It only works if you don't draw attention to it. Yeah, exactly. When you and make it a pun, it ruins it. Yeah, it's something where it's like I almost kind of think that they should have 
you know, normally I would not feel like this for localizations, but for some stuff, it's like maybe they should have actually changed the name of the city because it's like yeah. In, like calling the city insomnia, which is like it is the English word insomnia in Japanese. It's not like a, the Japanese word for the condition of insomnia. No, yeah. It's like that effect is very different in Japanese than just like the word insomnia in English, which is an English word. And so like yeah. it, the connotation is different. That that's like a more minor point, but it is the the, the localization all across the board is really weird. But it is definitely once like you know whether the dramatic storytelling works on you or not, like. The way it is handled in the English side of things is, like, fucking ridiculous. And I do not understand why it was translated the way it was. Yeah, you know, for the most part, it's not like you're going to lose plot beats. Like, that's explained, and they're not, like, changing motivations or things like that. But it is, I think, just some of those character things that, to me, work really well and are what makes the story work for me, I do think is robbed quite a bit in English. And I think if I played it that way, I probably would be much less forgiving of certain issues because I wouldn't have the connection that allows me to not overlook, but uh, look past maybe. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's worth mentioning right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah. So, you know, localization issues aside, we're into the, the, the linear structure. And so what's one of my, my issues with the linear section of the game, while I really enjoy the, the conceptually, that construction, and you, you talked about it on last week's podcast, and I thought it was a, it's a fascinating idea of you start with this open world section of the game, and then you funnel the players into this very straightforward, like not even, like I was going to say traditional, but it's not even really traditional for Final Fantasy, because it's way more linear than that, of like this like series of like short chapters of, that, that bring you to the end. And while like I like the idea of it, I think the execution is like one... There are a number of story beats that, like, feel insanely truncated in that section. And, like, I guess everything about that section of the game feels truncated. Of, like, every single chapter, with the exception of chapter 13 that we'll talk about, is, like, 15 to 30 minutes long. And it's, like, you are just, like, barreling through them. I feel like there was one of the chapters is, like, it felt like you, like, got off of a train, talked to, like, five people, and got on a fucking train again. That's the one I have a problem with, specifically, is the Tenebrae chapter. Yeah. It does feel... And I like the material there a lot. I think there's some good moments. But it feels like you see Tenebrae in the distance, and I'm like, there was a scene there. Like, that clearly... Yeah, I feel like every single one of these chapters, you look at something, it's like, oh, there was, like, a larger, small open world here. Or there was, like... The one that there was a that... boss fight here. Or there was, like... Or, like, you know, when you come up to the Shiva statue, it's like, there was, there was going to be something more here, and then there wasn't. Uh, yeah, and I feel that way about some and not the others. You know, I think Altissia is the full city... And sure. Explore. And Although it felt like there was going to be more stuff to do in there because there are literally no missions set in that area. It's like there's you you go off onto a mission that is set in the city, but is different geometry and everything. But like you can go into that city and then go talk to the dude that's in the cafe and then go to those gates and you are out of Altissia and that's like no. all that is there. You yeah, you can breeze through it. I I didn't. I enjoyed you know going around it. But yeah, I, it's it, look, it's an issue I have with a lot of the game, which is that I don't know if the narrative specifically leverages its world building as much as it should. Yeah. And it's kind of this push and pull between how much do you want to just trust the players to make what they will of that and how much do you want to pull them along enough that they get what you need them to get out of it. Um, and it's a question with a lot of open world games and I don't think this one gets that balance perfectly right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, 
Uh, Altissia is fucking beautiful. I just want to say that. Yeah, that like it's is. really beautiful. I wish there was. I get it. Yeah, more to do there because it's like I. Got Although there. I really like the Altissia portion of the game. I, I like that story wise and stuff. We can talk about. Yeah, it. Yeah, it's like well, okay. There's there's one thing we can talk about with that, but yeah, like but you get there and it's like oh this is so beautiful and then like I walked over and I bought like my car decals in my FF Type Zero soundtrack, which is the first thing I do every time. Anytime I go anywhere in that game is I go. It's like Gwent in The Witcher Three. In this, it's who is selling the fucking car shit and the soundtrack? I need to buy this immediately before I forget. I did yeah. that. I did some of the bounties that the one dude at the cafe gives you because he also, uh, if you want to get you, if you want to get to level ninety nine really quick in this game, that guy also sells you one hundred percent up XP yes. food. And I saw that. I was like, ha. And there's a hotel where you can get yes, three, three XP. times XP there. And yeah, there's yeah. I was about level eighty when I got platinum, so that's how yeah, I did. That. I'm level ninety nine right now in the game. Oh, you are. Yeah, I was actually maybe we should back up a little bit because I forgot to like give this context. Is I did way more of the open world stuff before going into that than I thought I was going to and really planned on doing. There's something about the mechanics of the game of like the day night cycle and having to fucking like take one quest and like go and do it and then come back and, and talk to the people and like the travel time and all that that like even if i kind of like despised it it was almost like almost like you talking about Stardew valley or something it was like like it like the 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 scheduled nature of it kept on pulling me to like keep it's on doing very more addictive and more and more. exactly addictive is the right word for it some of it is addictive and satisfying some of it is addictive and like pulling your teeth out but you or like or like like you know, playing with like a, uh, a teeth or something like a gum wound with your tooth, and it's like it hurts, but I just can't stop doing this. You know, like there's something weird about the sensation. I get it. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like that. So I was then also I was you know kind of gaming the experience system with the two times XP thing in the open world because I did not know that Atelier would have had a three times XP, or I would have waited until I got there, and well, I couldn't have because they'd make you cash in your fucking XP when you do some story stuff. But anyways. I was, long story short, I was level 64 by the time I started the linear section of the game, Jesus. which colors a lot of my impressions on how some of the combat stuff goes, and probably how chapter 13 went, because I just fucked everything on my way through that game. I was like, I was level 64, I also had the Ultima Blade, so I had the second strongest weapon you can basically get on Noctis, and I just went in there, and I was like, hey everybody, slash you're dead, slash you're dead, slash you're dead, and okay. just like... Breeze walked my way through the game, which is the way I like that combat, because when that combat is hard, I find it extremely frustrating. So I enjoyed okay. some stuff in this game that I suspect I would have actually not liked, like some combat sequences I would not have liked as much if I was not insanely overpowered. It, it felt good. Interesting. I was level 47 when I beat the story. So Yeah, because that's around, it seems like, because I think the last boss is like 42 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So that seems like around where you I felt I had a healthy challenge, and I, I like the combat system fine so yeah it's yeah yeah so like that's a like a little bit of like, we'll talk about it. i think chapter 13 is the one that probably like my experience with that is probably different than some people's because i did not have to engage with any of the stealth stuff or anything like that Look, because like I, can i just say my piece on chapter 13 now? Let's, no we'll get there I, when we get there okay like, i'm frustrated with we, we will we'll have this because that's that is a much bigger discussion that has like a lot of facets to it. I, I know. I I I think people are miscoloring chapter thirteen, but I'll. I mean, it's it is a dreadful chapter, but maybe not always not. for the reasons that people describe it for. Anyways, but so that is that is like my situation going into it is I had done a huge amount of the side quest stuff. Like okay. I I had gotten that um the like the highest trophy you get is like for completing eighty side quests. I had yeah. that okay. before I left. I just got that yesterday. So. Yeah. 
I I was ahead of the curve. And man, that ultimate blade is really fucking strong for that part of the game. I think I remember where do you find that? Um, it's it's the ultimate version of the engine blade, which is the if you oh, keep okay. on upgrading that, you have to do some grindy bullshit to get it to the last. Level. I never really did any of the weapon upgrading, so yeah. Because the yeah. weapon, if you play the game just kind of straight through, it gives you the weapons you need and stuff yeah. like that. So like the sword of the father you get in uh, chapter thirteen is very powerful and. You can use that. I use that all through the end game. It really works. On yeah, yeah. Game, so. I, that has really good stat boosts on it, so I keep it equipped. But yeah, yeah. like it, actually, like one of the things I wish this game had more gear. It's an, it's another one of the elements of the game that feels like weirdly truncated. Is like when you get down to it, there's really like five or six types of each weapon. And it's like it's a pretty brief upgrade window. And actually, there's like a store you can go to in one of the hunter areas in the open world that, like, I went to before I went through the game, that other than special weapons like the upgradable weapons and some you get through quests in the post-game, those give you, those sell you the most powerful weapons in the game. Like, the most powerful normal weapons. Right, I found that too. Yeah, yeah and so. yeah, so it's like, it's kind of like, that, that gear part of the game is a little bit weird. But anyways, so that's the open world stuff. Alticia, let's can, talk about... Can I say... Oh. Okay. We, can I say my overall thoughts on this part of the game? Okay, sure. Done that yet? sure, sure. I, I just in terms of the because you said your piece on the overall yeah, yeah, yeah. linear. Yeah, um, I like the overall linear part a lot. I think there are definitely parts that feel truncated. There are parts to this entire game that feel truncated. I think uh, I was I've written a lot of notes on this game so I can write you know up a piece on wherever it lands on my top ten or whatever. And you know one of the things I kept kind of coming back to was it kind of feels like we're seeing the story of this game through a keyhole. It's kind sure, of that, that sure. line from Doctor Strange that Tilda Swinton has. And, you know, you're not at any point really seeing the full scope of it. And I do think that's disappointing in some parts. Um, but what comes through to me was still immensely powerful if I look at the overall through line. And I think this is just something you and I have talked about before, which is that I think you're someone who in storytelling is more interested in structure and sure. some of those things than I am. And I come I come off way more on things like emotion and atmosphere. Yeah, like, I like to have, like, powerful thematic arguments in my stories, I think, more than... I like that, Like, too, like yeah. we both, like, like yeah. in the same way that I really like, like, powerful, like, melodramatic emotional beats as right, well. Right. Yeah. But, like, I, I think we kind of fall a little bit on different sides on what we prioritize more than... Yes, absolutely. And I think this game is actually a really good example of that. Yeah. When I follow the main arc of the game, it works for me very well, even if I do think, obviously, there are spots along the way and character motivations that do not get fully explained or elucidated and I think that's too bad but the overall thrust of it worked for me and I think if I describe the overall way the linear stuff works in relation to the open world thing for me is I like how you have the open world thing there are issues there but they fell away from me the more I played because what it's doing to me is it's creating this space of memory and nostalgia and this area where it is kind of a halcyon days kind of thing for this, these characters and I think they leverage that really well in the linear part, especially the closer you get to the end. And I think there's some specific beats with how they leverage that that moved me uh, immensely and how they, you know, really the core of this game is those four characters and their relationship and their friendship. And I think with Noctis especially, what I like about the open world part, and it starts throwing this at you as soon as you get to Alticia and some of the story beats that happens there, is it tears him the fuck down more and more and more and his friends there is this you know thematic thing that goes on where each character disappears for a while has a big injury comes back and is changed and then of course it comes down to that line that uh, Bahamut gives Noctis which is that the people who have made the sacrifice for you you are the king you have to make it back for them and that's what the end of the game is for Noctis and I think the way they build to that moved me very heavily in that each part of the linear 
um, section, each chapter changes up the gameplay mechanics in some way, gives you a very different gameplay mechanic. Um, you know, the chapter 13 is very different than the stuff you do with the boss fight in Altissia, which is very different than like the Ifrit fight at the end of chapter 14 and things like that. So each one really changes that up and puts you, you know, you have had this immense section in the open world where you have a pretty good feeling for what the fundamentals of this game are. And then as it is doing to Noctis, it is challenging you the same way over and over again and bringing him sort of lower and lower and lower. And it's one of the things we'll get to with chapter 13. I like how it explores liminality and things like that with the character in terms of getting into these spaces where he's very lost and has to build himself back up. And I think that's something that the gameplay leverages intelligently in terms of playing off your expectations of what you have in this very in this open world, which like most open worlds is homogenized at a certain point of what you have played and what you expect out of it. And so that is why it works for me. And I think a lot of the narrative beats, why they work specifically, is because of what experiential stuff you bring to the game because of what time you played with it and then how it leverages that in the linear part. So that's my piece on that okay. overall. And I just wanted to say that up front because I can get into the micro and things I dislike. That's the macro view of it, and that's why it works for me. Yeah, so, so like for me, I think... I kind of I get the the theory of it of like what you're saying and like I understand why it would work for you. For me, like that stuff is it, it just felt like if this game did not have the linear section, I would have liked it more because I think the story would in some ways almost like be more effective. Of like, I I, I don't think the story that they tell in the linear section connects very strongly or in some ways at all with like how I experienced the open world. And it felt like in a, like a lot of this game, it felt like. You know, like maybe this is me projecting too much of knowing that it had a very troubled production, but it felt like we have this game, we have like all these materials all this time, like we've switched directors, we've done all this shit, and we don't have a lot to show for it, but we do have like this one open world section that we kind of got down. Like, let's just double down on that and then do what we can with the story, because I just don't think the story while you are in the open world section, ever leverages the open world section effectively. And so many of, like, character moments, character introductions, plot things, exposition, that stuff is either, like, if it exists at all, it either exists outside the game in the form of Kingslave and Brotherhood, or it exists in optional, very easy-to-miss scenes that only occur at specific campsites and motels and stuff like that. Like or the best, books and radio and yeah, stuff. Yeah, like, the best scene in the whole game is one with, like, you and Prompto on a motel rooftop at night that, like, a bunch of players probably never saw. Like, I barely saw it. I saw it, like, 30 minutes or something before I started the linear section. I could have very easily missed that if I hadn't decided to do a couple more quests after I had turned in all my XP, you know? And so, like, that stuff, so much of the plot of the open world section of the game takes place... After the, like, road trip wedding thing has already been broken and you are, like, spinning your wheels in weird ways that then once you get to the linear section, like, like, I did, like, there's some sort of experiential nostalgia around, like, playing around with those characters, but I feel like there is this weird, uh, discord between that experience and what the main plot has been telling me the whole time because I have been defying the main plot in so many ways by saying like eh fuck it like fuck this shit about going and finding like the lightning god I want to just fish you know and like to me like the the game feels like there are two pieces to it there's the open world piece and like all the game mechanics in that and all that stuff is so good and then there's this linear story they try to bolt on top of it and while some of it works kind of effectively in that you, you build some natural affection towards the characters 
I think they don't do a lot of very strong work investigating the characters they establish and the themes they establish and the ideas they establish through their actual linear storytelling, and a lot of that never worked for me at all. I understand. I like. I don't disagree with a lot yeah. of this in theory. Um, just as I think you were saying, you don't disagree with what I'm saying in theory. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that is an issue with the open world, and by the time I got to the end of the linear stuff, I realized, like, it had just gelled for me in some way, even though I, yeah, I wish in the open world part they had found a way to integrate the storytelling and the road trip nature of it. Um, but, yeah, still... God, I wish this was just a fucking road trip game. Why can't they just make a road trip game? Why does it have to be about, like, the end of the world and the darkness coming and all that shit? Like, why it... can't it just be Noctis having to go on a road trip with his three buddies and learn, like, the value of life outside of the kingdom in the capital? I th- like, that, that feels be... like the story they wanted to tell and then they didn't. Well, I wonder if it's the other way around. Because, like, I was looking at over the... Once after I beat the game... Um... I was looking at different pieces of marketing from over the years on this. Like, yeah. First, I went back and watched the very first Versus 13. Re- Versus 13 reveal. And it is fascinating to me how much of that did survive to the yeah. final version, like with the Armiger system and like Noctis' character design, which is softer, but it's pretty much Noctis. Yeah. Although, from what I understand, like all of the main plot stuff in like most core characters like changed almost completely from no, I, that. Yeah. Yeah. But like then you watch... So I watched that. But then you watch the, the reveal trailer for 15 which was at E3 2013. And that has all the characters. It's got the combat system. All of that is there. But there's no hint of an open world in there. Like, it's clearly... Like, that. It's everything in that trailer is not in the game because it's an opening chapter in Insomnia where you as Noctis and the three guys are there while it falls and then escape. I'm almost surprised they didn't put the footage from that trailer in as a dream sequence somewhere in this game because they really like to leverage their fucking marketing materials and everything as storytelling devices in their game in a weird way. But like that suggests to me that probably while Nomura, throughout the time Tetsuya Nomura was directing this, it was just going to be a linear game with different chapters. Um, And then, you know, I think at some point, I, I don't know where the open world came into it or anything like that, but it feels like that's probably what the last three years of development was, was that and then leveraging the story on top of all that and and trying to make it all come together which it does and it doesn't in different ways yeah. so yeah um you know i i i don't feel like it feels as unfinished to me in some of these ways where i do think like yes the two halves are very different but i also think like just the overall art design and things like that and the way the characters work throughout it and how in the end it's calling back to things you saw in the open world and and just like the specific beat the story ends on to go into credits. It doesn't feel the way like a Metal Gear Solid Five does where you're just playing unfinished levels at the end of that game. I don't sure. feel that. I here. mean, like, like, because Metal Gear Solid Five is on a different level of, like, there are whole subplots that, like, just straight... Or subplots, or arguably the main plot of that game just straight up does not ever get resolved. And, like, you know, Knights of the Old Republic 2 is what I mentioned earlier. And, like, this is not severe as that, where that game was so unfinished that you literally watch one cutscene where a character dies, and then that character is not actually dead in the story, and you never find out why. You don't know if, like... What like what the fuck that was like that game basically ends with like a slideshow of text that tells you what happens at the end like that game was completely unfinished. This doesn't have that effect. This more feels like they like it was like that, but then they managed to pull their shit together just enough to like okay let's do this cinematic and put it here and like let's we've like there there are clearly sections of the game and this is like like I don't want to bring this up too much because it's kind of weird outside stuff but after beating the game I did go onto some forums and was like reading some stuff 
and there has there was a leak about six months before this game came out from one of the people in the development of it that they talked a lot about the story stuff, and now that the game is out, you can, we can basically confirm that, well, yes, because that guy was one-to-one on, like, the entire plot of this game, and then he talked a lot about, like, different things that were going to be in the game that were getting cut, or, like, sequences they were working on that maybe weren't going to come out. So, like, I had this impression well before, like, reading that stuff, but then after reading that stuff, like, there are... Like, an unnaturally large amount of things in this game that they were working on that, that got cut to get this game shipped. And, like, I feel like you can see those holes in... Especially, like, when you do, like, the time jump forward and stuff like that. And you are only in that, like, dark world for, like, five minutes and stuff like that. Like, there are large areas and sections and monsters and characters that have things happen to them or like or things occur in like like assets that are used so briefly that you can that it's so clear that there was designed to be way more here and a lot of this stuff feels patched together i do think that like that patchwork is way better than some other unfinished games i've played but it in no way ever feels like this is the version of the game that like the people making this team really wanted to get out the door it feels like a heavily compromised version of this game which i feel is also in many ways confirmed by them saying, like, a week or two after the game released of, like, okay, yeah, we're patching in, like, cared, like cutscenes and stuff like that. We're, like, doing that for different sections of the game. It's like, okay, like, yeah, like, you, there are clearly lots of things that you really want to get into this game that was more than just the occasional Halo 2, like, we cut a level and had to have a super long cutscene. It's like, no, you cut out some pretty substantial portions of this game. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, yeah, that's definitely part of the experience of this game. Yeah. So... Anyway, let's go ahead and go through some of this. You wanted yeah. to talk about Alticia. So this yeah. is the portion with uh, Lunafreya, and we have the summoning of Leviathan and all of that. Yeah, so. yeah. So this this is, I mean, it's like, it's, we say this because it is like the, literally the first thing that happens in the linear section, but this is kind of where the plot of the game lost me, is that they, they kill Lunafreya off fucking immediately. Like, you get out of that open world, and that is like the practically the first thing that happens is they just fucking kill her. And like, Noctis and her have like a minute of shared screen time together. Like, she imparts like her die. I think she imparts her dying words on him. I don't actually remember. Maybe she's she dead does. by the. Okay, yeah. Well, like, it's in the spirit kind of th- thing. Yeah, and there are some like weird ethereal cutscenes that are like, like the cutscene after she is dead is very beautiful, but it's also just like. Why was she even in this fucking game at some point if, like, you are just going to fridge her immediately? Like, it it just felt like she existed so blatantly for the purpose of the plot and to give Noctis a character motivation. And, like, at no point did I buy buy their relationship together. At no point was I... I mean, I was interested in Luna Freina's character before she was killed because I thought they were building up to something with her. I thought in a lot of, like, in, like, Kingsglaive and stuff, there was a sense of there maybe being something more to her that, like, I kept on hoping so hard that they were going to reveal, like, that she didn't really love Noctis that much because they barely know each other and, like, it's only that, like, it is her duty. Like, that's what she cares about. But none of that really comes up, and if anything, like, that interpretation that I was kind of hoping they were going to go for, that felt like it could have worked, gets destroyed by some of the stuff they show you later after the fact of her, like, talking about the wedding and stuff and with her brother. And it's like, no, okay, it seems like you are just, like, really sort of slavishly dedicated to Noctis for 
whatever reason and it's not just this like oracle duty thing you've got and like she just feels like the most generic cliche underdeveloped like princess ass princess character i've seen in the story in a long fucking time and they just they just fucking kill her immediately i couldn't believe how quickly they just like they could not wait to get her in the grave i disagree on some levels here i don't I mean, yes, it's the first chapter after the open world and she does die there. Yeah. Um, and it's fast and it's surprising. I think there's a pretty substantial section of that chapter that is all about her. And, and Sure. You know, um, and I think she makes, she made to me a very strong impression there. And I think I really like the Altissia section just in terms of, I think it's aesthetically just overwhelming. Some sure. Of the stuff they like, do there. the game and is stylish as fuck. Like, stylish that never as goes away. I think the fight with Leviathan... Uh, jaw-dropping to me yeah the specific progression of images and there's a lot of stuff like this in the linear section where i just thought like this is clearly stuff tetsuya nomura did and it's where it's i find it weird that he is not credited as co-director on this game um just because they're like that is like that entire altissia section that is as tetsuya nomura as you can possibly get with like some of the stuff of just this entire you know apocalyptic scale of the Leviathan coming in, and then Noctis trying, and you know they're trying. Your friends are trying to get the people out of the city, and you're trying to get there. And just I've never seen a game operating on that kind of technological scale. I think it feels like we stepped a generation ahead to see some of that stuff in the Altissia section even happen on a PS4. Um, and then you get there, and you're you're not waiting, and it's really tough. And I think that entire sequence where. Um, you know, I think the way it's done aesthetically is very powerful with um, Arden coming in and he stabs her and she kind of is able to give with her dying words and all stuff this power to Noctis and then it leverages that into the, the gameplay and you're fighting the Leviathan. I think that's a really cool sequence and boss fight. Um, and then the sequence after that where she dies, I, I called it a beautiful cutscene. I think it's incredibly beautiful and I like that a lot and found it moving. And I guess what it made me think of throughout there was I was initially, I was like, oh, they're going to kill her right now. I don't like that. I don't know, the way it's done to me, though, is I feel like they're kind of aware that that's the thing that's happening, is that you're going for that goal the whole time, and then she dies and it's taken from you, and... But, yeah. like, but they never really convinced me, like, sure, like, Noctis as a character, whatever, like, he wants to go get her, but, like, me as the player, like, you spend, like, no time with Luna Freyna. Like, you get a couple of very brief flashback sequences, like, two or three before you meet her, then she gives, like, that one speech, and then... She gets stabbed and she's dead. And it's like, I'm never invested in her really as a character or in their relationship as an actual thing. I'm only invested in her as like this hypothetical character and their relationship as this hypothetical relationship. And so to me, it had no real emotional impact, even if I recognized that like how well executed, like a lot of the production of all of it was like the actual emotional thrust of it felt so blunted to me by like, have her, like, let me spend time with her, you know? Like, you know, Final Fantasy VII didn't kill Eris off in, like, the first three hours of that game. You spend time with her as a character to get to know her before she gets killed, you know? Sure, and I do think that's one of the things you could have done in Altissia that would have been really cool is having a significant segment that was you and Luna Freya. Yeah, like, you know that whole part where you go with Iris on that date around the... the, the not Tenebrae, but, like, whatever, the, the city in... uh the open world section is, and then, like, that kind of goes nowhere because they don't ever do anything with that character. It's like, 
do that with Luna Freyna instead because she's actually important to the main plot. Like, build... Like, if they had killed Iris, I would have been way more affected by that because I really liked her sections in the game. You, like... I liked going on that date with her, like, getting the tour of the town. I liked, like, having her ride in the car with me and then going to that one weird dungeon and having her ride a pink chocobo and all that. Like, that was all good, yeah. Really good. And then that character goes away and instead you're giving Luna Freyna back and it's like, oh... Well, I guess we're not going to learn anything about her, really. Like, we're, like, the most we learn about her is after she is killed, which is a pretty ass-backwards way to try to handle that, that, like, emotional beat. I guess, yeah. I mean, yeah, I wish they had done more with her in that part. Um, it affected me. And, you know, maybe I'm just being worked over by the production. I don't know. I do think uh, I can't ignore that part of it for me and the, the, the effect it had. But I, you know, I think... Uh, that entire section and the way it comes down at the end with that specific cutscene and then the reveal of what's happened to Ignis and then the jump to the train and some of the stuff that happens there, I think it kicks off a tone for that section of the game that worked very well for me. But again, I'm talking about this on that scale of the, the keyhole metaphor I had of, you know, I can see the bigger thing that was there and it's not all there. And, you know, sometimes that kind of thing really falls flat for me, like in a Metal Gear Solid Five, and sometimes it works, in this case it worked. So... Yeah, that that part of the game, um, I, I I was actually that's where I, that I was off a really pretty high moment when I got to that because that's where I had stopped playing last week when I was talking about this game on the podcast. Oh, okay, was I had just gotten basically to the train. I had saved when you start the train sequence. Okay, yeah, because for me that was the part where like I because I was like pretty kind of pumped of like okay I've I've done like all this stuff in the open world time to go do this Altissia stuff and then I was a little bit disappointed by the Altissia stuff because there wasn't as much there as I was kind of hoping and like. I was. I kind of wish you had not mentioned the arena because I had assumed that the arena was like you get to fight stuff. It says, well, I like the arena. It's cockfighting. Like I'm not here to like watch AI fight other AI. Like I'm here to fucking kill shit. That's I don't know what I'm here for. I found it fun. I uh, I spent a little time there, and you get some good stuff. You get a really good reel for your rod, and you can make your get something for your car to make it go faster. So that was good. that's only affects the post game at that point, but. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. yeah, but so like you know, I found like Altissia was like this really like brief truncated area. That, that it also is like kind of weird to be like, oh wait, this is just like the place from the Platinum demo. And it's like I spent, I did more stuff in the Platinum demo in that area because it's like the whole area, like the like that kind of terrace area where you're yeah. in the Platinum demo. They don't do anything with that spot in the game. It's kind of weird. No, but, I, I wish they did more. I, yeah. But yeah. yeah, so then like I did all that stuff. I was like, oh, like I'll tell you this, like sort of short. And then I went off on the like the one main quest, like not actually really thinking that that would be like one where it's like, oh, this is like where this whole city basically gets destroyed, and I'm not coming back here until I'm done with this game. But you know, you go off on that mission, and then they do that stuff, and like it is all very impressive and cool looking for sure. And like the music is great, like. All, like, throughout all of this discussion, like, just take for granted, it looks fucking awesome and the music is amazing because that is always true. I, I'm not going to take that away from the game. But, like, to to start off the sort of, like, story-intensive part of the game by just killing the character that they had been building up to you meeting the entire time, like, so just threw a wet blanket on the experience. And then I think, for me, moving into the second, like, the, the, the next chapter, I think, while, like there's a like they do a little bit to try and kind of justify why gladio is being such a fucking dick i don't think they like that that conflict feels a little extra force to me than it needs to do to a point where like 
I was kind of getting fed up with it from like not just a, like uh oh like like me sympathizing with Noctis and more just a like this is getting fucking annoying of like shut the fuck up Gladiolus like you I don't know why you are as mad as me as you are and like the Ignis stuff I thought like the them blinding Ignis and handling that I think that is probably the best story stuff in the whole linear section of the game I think they handled that pretty well but like there's something about like Gladiolus doing this like full heel turn of just like being a massive fucking cliche dick and it's like it's such the cliche like we need to have this plot moment in this kind of plot of having like this tension between some of the group but like there are ways to do that well and there is the way they did it in this game okay I, I I'm not even entirely sure what you're talking about because it worked for me and I didn't find it anywhere near that um intensive i guess it was just like like there's something really weird about we kill off noxus's love interest and all that stuff and he gets the fucking ring and then we cut to a few weeks later and he's bummed out and gladiolus just walks him and is like what the fuck are you doing man why are you so bummed out all the time it's like why aren't you wearing the ring like you're just gonna wear it around your neck it's like why the fuck would he be wearing the ring like yeah he's sad fucking of course he's sad but he's still going to do Whatever the fuck it is you people are trying to do right now in the plot, because that's not very clear. But he's still trying to like, like it just felt so like sort of abrupt in a weird way of like. Okay, it didn't feel abrupt to me because one, I feel like that's a natural evolution of the role Gladiolus is playing in the whole game, which is this big brother thing where he is trying to bring out the best in Noctis at just about every turn, and that's kind of he is trying to see this guy as the best version of himself, and at that moment. Uh, one, everything has fallen to utter shit in their lives and their goal, and he feels like maybe he cannot believe in this person the way he wants to. I mean, that's specifically something he says about you being the king and you're not living up to that. And I feel like they got through all of this and they have, you know, is he being unreasonable on some level? Yes, I also feel like Noctis is at that point. So there's this low point for all of them. You know, Ignis, their best friend, has just been blinded for life and this kind of stuff. So that worked for me just fine, and I think it's another thing where... You know, that's a part where you go through this dungeon, which is something at that point again that is fairly familiar to you. But now you have this extra layer of you have to wait for Ignis because he's blind. Gladiolus or you just is... keep on running because. Yeah, well, yeah. I I was level sixty four. I don't need them to help me in the fights. Yeah, well, anyway, well, you can however you want to play sure, it. Yeah. But you have that. You have Gladiolus being you know ver- vis- you, ver- what am I trying to say? Verbally. Visibly mad at you. Oh. Verbally mad at you. You know those things. And, uh, you know, it's another thing where it's like, okay, now I'm doing something that I was familiar to me in this game, and it feels different because circumstances has, have changed. That worked for me very well. I sure. like I think part. I think maybe it's just like the transition feels so abrupt. And it's, it's one of the, I think, and it's like true of kind of this whole section of the game, is there's like this, you are just moving so quickly from plot point to plot point to plot point to plot point without like a lot of time for anything to breathe or develop. And like, and when you do have time to breathe, I don't even think they use it as effectively as they could because I did like you are on that train and like you just have to be on the train until it arrives. I felt like you could have like done something more here. And there's something like specifically in this section, I felt like like this in a weird way of like, you can't really talk to people in this game ever. And, it, and normally it's kind of fine, but there's something about it getting into this section of the game of like, why can't I just fucking, like, talk to Prompto? Like, why can't I talk to Ignis? Like, why can't I engage with these people in the, in the world? And it's something that's especially weird when you get to Tenebrae, there is, in the, all the game, there's only, this is the only instance I've ever found this, there's one fucking person, it is, like, the, the people, uh, the two dudes who are going to, like, conduct your train, 
You can get an optional conversation with them that when you talk to them, the screen fades to black, it fades back up with a unique camera angle that's centered on their face, and they give you they talk to you for like a solid two to three minutes. It's like that's the only one of those in the entire fucking game. And it and it feels like there are sp- spots scattered around the linear section. Like specifically, I remember where like it hit me the hardest was getting off that train and you see Prompto is like leaning over this rail looking out over the landscape in such a like posed way that's like oh I have I've played video games before I'm going to walk up over to him and have an optional conversation about like all the shit that has happened and get like find out where are we why are we here where are we going to where are we trying to go what are we trying to do like how does Lunafrena dying affect what we are trying to do like how are you feeling about that how are you feeling about the Ignis stuff like there's so much tension and weird convoluted expositional shit wrapped up in the narrative that needs to get unspooled in some way and like that would be the perfect way to do it and you can't do it and so it just for me like that point on like that stuff just gets so tangled and wrapped up that like by the time they try to deliver some like emotional moments it's just like couching like why the fuck are we trying to go to the empire again it's like did we find out that the crystal is here, or are we just assuming that at this point? Like, the, like you, I had to go rely on, like, loading screen tips between chapters of being like, okay, yeah, we are still heading towards the Empire. Right. Because nobody is talking about what our objective or motivation is at this point anymore. Like, that shit has just been, like, forgotten in the story. Like, are we still trying to find the Six Gods? Whatever happened to trying to find all the royal arms? Like, where, what, like what is the plot doing at this point? I felt, like, constantly sort of confused by. Not in a... In extreme way, but just enough to feel like I don't really know what we're doing anymore here. Okay, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely uh, in those parts, I agree with you. Like that, I remember the same moment where Prompto is leaning over the railing, like I'm gonna go talk to him. Oh, you can't. There definitely. Yeah, were they, a... I think you can. Like you can prompt on him, but the, like all he does is say like, "Hey, we should probably go down that elevator." It's like, okay, thanks, Prompto. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, I mean, I do wish actually it's in that part. Um, when you get to like the dark world part, there's a couple of moments where I wish they had more conversations with your main team because those are the characters you care about. Those are the core characters here. And, and it I just, feel yeah, like... it feels like things happen to them that are like plot moments, but they never really come across other than the Ignis being blinded. I think they handle fairly well, but they never come across as like developing character moments because they are breezed by so insanely quickly by the plot. And we'll get to, like, the Prompto version of that with him being from Niflheim is, like, the most extreme version yes. of just, like, like, this could be a character moment. This could be a thing that develops these characters. But by the end of the game, I came across, like, or I came away so disappointed by how sort of flat the relationship with most of your team felt by the end of, like, it didn't get, like, complicated in interesting ways. Like, like I said, for me... The, the Gladiolus is like version of them trying to complicate that relationship just felt like awkward and forced. And maybe that's just like, I, I don't know like what that is. It's hard for me to sort of like specify why I felt that way, but it, I just felt that way. But like when they do try to complicate the relationships, it's like brief, quick, and kind of didn't make a lot of sense to me. And for the most part, when you kind of track the character relationship across the game, it's like we start out as friends, we're friends, we have a bump, and we're friends, and like, and we end as friends. It's like we're it's friendship all the way down. And there's never that moment of like assembling your team or like the team really breaking apart and having to bring them back together. Because when those moments happen, they get breezed by with such narrative ease that it's like it never feels like you were ever really apart in a significant way at all. And so that's 
one of my issues with the game is like it, it, it sort of like starts here is like they don't complicate the relationships and develop the relationships with your three buddies in the way that it feels like the story really needs to happen okay so let's see so we have we, we went through chapters 9 and 10 yeah 11 and 12 kind of blur together. One of them is where you're on the train right. and you have... I actually thought this was a very cool sequence in terms of the where the train is being attacked. Yeah, and, and you have to like warp from... strike between the ships. That's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I, I like that whole sequence a lot. The whole thing where Arden is impersonating Prompto or making Noctis see visions with Prompto. I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff there where it kind of doesn't specifically tell you what's going on, but you wind up getting the gist of it. Sure. And then with what happens where Prompto is knocked off the train and it's another low point for everyone. Um, and... Uh, that winds up coming back in chapter 13 where you wind up finding him. Um, so yeah, so there's that whole section. I don't know if there's a ton to say about that there. Yeah, no, like it's the... like it's like more a cool gameplay sequence that sets up Prompto yeah. being abandoned or whatever, like yeah. more than it is like there's not a lot of real plot stuff that happens yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, I I think there are moments where I wish they had slowed down and we could have had more in between. The overall pace I found very compelling in terms of how high stakes things felt and that we're moving towards this climax um and this you know literal linear we're on a train we're trying to get to this one place and you know it's it's definitely a somewhat familiar story beat where you know pretty much everything they had is lost on the way there down to in in the beginning of chapter 13 the regalia gets destroyed yeah. and things like that so that overall sense of pace and some of the breathness breathlessness of it worked very well for me even if there are parts where i thought well this shouldn't be breathless this is where we need to take a breath yeah. So I think there's some moments where that works, some where it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. But. Like, like I, do, I think like that chapter is mostly fine because of, I think that is a moment where that breathless pace works. Of like, it's very action focused and like you're like kind of juggling a lot of plates, and I think that that comes is effective. And but then you arrive at Tenebrae, and that's like the the number one chapter where you're like, is this what what is? Because like it was especially like you get there and like it's completely destroyed and for a second I was like why why is it this like and I don't remember if I like, maybe I just like missed a really critical line of dialogue or something but there's something at some point it's like isn't this in imperial territory like why who did the empire destroy this place like what the fuck happened why is everything destroyed here was I mean, like the whole city of... is destroyed you see it off in the distance i mean it's completely on fire and like you're like all okay. these refugees and everyone's right. crying about having lost their homes like it felt like you stepped onto the set of fucking godzilla you know it's like okay but but like where's godzilla like that's kind of what it felt like i, I to believe me. it all has to do with ravis which is a character we need to talk about <laughs> yeah um, yeah because this is where you start getting into the ravis stuff it, on the train there are optional like books and uh, radio yeah. broadcasts you can hear where basically uh, you find out he's going to be executed. Or he has been executed. executed. Is yeah. like the like. Uh, there's one conversation I heard in Tenebrae where they're like, "Oh, such a shame that Ravis was executed," which was really weird because I was just talking to Aranea and she was talking about Ravis as if he was alive, and then this little old lady was like, "Oh, yeah. I if only Ravis was here." And, like basically, we lost him. And the, then I get on the train and I read a newspaper and they're like. And he has been suffered like capital punishment. It's like okay, I guess they killed him. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, the the point of the Tenebrae sequence is to go back into Luna Freya and uh, Ravis's motivations and stuff. And there is that one scene with Aranea, where or no, not Aranea, because she's 
you haven't seen with Aranea, yeah. but the actual scene is with the woman from Tenebrae. Yeah, yeah, like her, her, like Luna Freitas' handmaiden. Yeah, and you learn that. And I like that scene. Uh, I think it clarifies some things. What I, I do think what this sequence probably wanted to be is where you would go to her childhood home or something and do like an almost uh, uncharted Naughty Dog kind of thing where you would walk around and like yeah. learn things. And this would be a moment where you would kind of wallow in all of those losses. This is definitely the chapter I have the biggest complaints about because I feel like that's just very naturally, that's what it feels like that is there for. And you get a sliver of it, but not the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's just such a, like a weird, it like, it feels like, like you know along the development or whatever like they just had to cut that sequence down so much that it is like it is the most vestigial it can possibly be because it it's like there's like some things that you can't completely cut it out like you need to go there because like there's a lot of like people talking about that we're going to go there and then like what's you there that like serves as a necessary transition point to the sense of like everything is getting destroyed even if you have no re- real reason to understand how or why it is being destroyed but it is so like it needs to convey that but it's all the like actual important details of like what you really want to know is like uh you get like a brief flashback with Luna Freyna and but that doesn't really give you a whole lot like it all it clarifies like is stuff that they've already sort of implied of oh her serving like the, the her responsibilities as an oracle is going to result in her death for reasons and like Ravis doesn't want that to happen because he's her brother and that's like that's the information that comes across but like that information is like by the time you have gotten to this point they have uh streamlined so much about the narrative that honestly like that information is not even really useful anymore like ravis could have been cut out of the fucking plot entirely like who gives a shit you know like the, well, it would like, have been smoother if they had just completed and come cut him out at some point which would have been hard because he's in kingsglaive a lot but like in kingsglaive he also is the one who leaves you the sword you could have come up with a billion plot reasons for why that sword is there. Like, the Emperor stole it when your father was killed and you find it in the throne room. Like, I mean, I think, I think again, it's not fully done, but I think the theme of, the, the, the whole idea of this was something Luna Freya had and was bequeathing to Noctis, and that Ravis ultimately turned against the Empire to help his sister and do this, and he died for all of this, and it's another moment of Noctis at a literal low point, because he's been thrown down the tower, and he finds that there, and you do some readings and realize how much has been sacrificed to get him to that point and then that sets you up for the moment when you get back up and you talk to Bahamut in the crystal and it's that idea of him sacrificing back for everything that's been lost yeah so. like the the issue with that is that the plot the version of that they give you is a Wikipedia summary of that plot that's like it would have been more dramatically effective to me if they had cut it out entirely like whether or not if like it had been fleshed out it could have used as an important detail like in the version of the game we got like it is so muddied and confused and weird that's just like why is this actually important at this point like we have plenty of like other people sacrificing for Noctis of like Ignis losing his eye and Prompto getting Metal Gear Solided or whatever happened to him like we don't need we don't need Ravis like the brother guy to, to like sacrifice everything for his sister we don't need to have that like weird like spark notes plot in there as well it worked I mean I, yeah I, I think there could have been more I, it didn't bother me and I also feel like I don't know. I understood it fine enough. It didn't, like, I, I looked around and there's, like, way more lore out there about it, but I didn't feel like I completely was lost because I didn't get every detail yeah. of the story. Although you can, I can see very easily how some people would have been completely yes. lost. Because, like, 
if you had clicked on that newspaper, or like if I had clicked on that newspaper and decided not to read it, which I have with several of the books I found lying around because I just wasn't in the mood, I would have had really kind of no idea that Ravis was dead. I would have like had the idea in the back of my mind, but like that conversation I overheard was so weird and awkward and felt completely out of place because again, it directly contradicted what I had just been told by a main plot-centric character like Arnea that's like... I could totally see how some people would have encountered uh, Ravis' dead body in the next chapter. It's just being like, what the fuck happened? Like, why would you not make this more important if, like, you're trying to make it important now? Like, you need to kind of know the context of what happened for it to feel significant to you at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Wait, uh, one... Before we move on, one point. I really like RNA a lot. She's a good character. I, I think maybe a lot of that is also uh, her voice actress, voice actress in Japanese is Miyuki Sawashiro, who's like one of my favorite voice actresses. I love her voice a lot. What else she's, has she done? Uh, she's like in every fucking thing. Okay. Like the, it's not something you've probably seen, but the most prominent role I can think of is she plays a character named Kanbaru in the Monogatari series of anime, which is like a very acclaimed. Yeah. Different kind of thing, but just, just for the people. If yeah, she's like, just look her up on right. Wikipedia. Or she's something. one of she's, those Japanese actors yeah, who's in everything. She is in everything. She's got an, she's just got such a fucking awesome voice that I was so happy when I ran into her. And like, when you run into her like boss fight in the open world section, I was like, I reckon I could recognize that voice fucking anywhere. You are going to come back again, and I am very happy about that. Yeah. Uh, Ignis is the other guy in this game where if you look up his list of credits, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. You and I were talking last week about the Persona 5 connection. Yeah, he, like, he is also the voice of Ryuji, who's the Yosuke equivalent in Persona 5. So look forward to that. He's fucking light in Death Note. Yes, yeah, he's also I, that, yeah. I knew I recognized the voice, because I haven't played Persona 5, so I didn't know that. But like, I knew I knew that voice. I was like, yes, of course that's light in Death Note. That's a pretty distinctive, like, dry voice he has. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I also... I. We, we can go to this at different points, but like the whole thing of Ignis being blind, I think it's so perfect that he's the character who basically becomes Zatoichi by the end of this game. Yeah. Like, that's actually a very, like, I think, natural role for him to fulfill. Yeah. And I like, that's actually one of the things I really like about the time jump they do is you see how he's kind of learned to live with it, and he's a fucking badass. Yeah. So, anyway. The one thing I kind of am bummed out with the Ignis blindness thing that they never really addressed is, like, you could have like there's they've done they made really good use of um in some places particularly in the blindness section of taking things that you expected and using them uh as like a narrative tool of like uh the cooking thing in particular in the blind section of like where you go to camp and he can't cook because he's blind and so you just have to like eat like canned noodles or something right you if you had bought cup noodles in the cup noodle side quest you could have had some delicious refreshing cup noodles to help you through your journey how do you feel about the product placement in this game? I uh, think it's lovely. It, it goes over the edge to being terrible, then over the edge to being amazing, then over the edge to being terrible, to over the edge to being amazing. I think it's fucking amazing. It's so insanely, ridiculously over the top. Of like, you just basically, Gladiolus gives this whole speech about like, we had it all wrong, man. It's not just about the meat. It's not just about the eggs. It's not just about the noodles. You can't just just get the best meat in the world and make the best cup noodles in the world. It's about all these ingredients put together in the perfect blend that just they all work together. They synchronize their their taste amazingness to just bring you pure bliss. We were so misguided. We should just go to the cup noodle stand and buy some goddamn cup noodles. Not this. I've seen the error of my ways. It's great, and if I don't know if this is randomized or something, but I at least got this where one of Prompto's photos when I did that quest was Gladiolus just standing smiling in front of the cup noodles truck. I got that one as well. That should just be a billboard for cup noodles. 
Yeah, or like it should just be like, or him, like it, it, you should have after you did that quest, like when you rested, all ten of Prompto's photos should have just been different photos of Gladiolus posing with cup noodles. <laughs> it's pretty great, but yeah. Anyways, yeah, the cup noodle thing is like for those people who don't know, cup noodle is a specific brand of food that's like is not you don't yeah. find it a lot over here, but it's very common in Japan. So it's like there's a there's a weird product placement deal in this game, and cup noodle sure fucking got their plug that they wanted. But anyways, yeah, like, the, the Ignis stuff, I thought that that was an effective twist of gameplay mechanics to sort of deliver an emotional beat of, like, oh, right, like, he can't do this anymore. I thought they, they missed a trick of, like, trying to do the same thing with him driving, and he can't drive because he's blind. That's just like a... Well, there's no part where he would drive. Yeah, exactly, so, but yeah. it just felt like I was, I was waiting for it to happen, and I was like, oh, you missed a trick with that one, guys. Yeah. Maybe they could have had a line in the part where you do have to drive the car at the yeah. end of, like, uh... It just felt conspicuous to me because at some point in the game, like, I just had him drive me around everywhere while I, like, read yeah. an article online or something. Yeah. So it was just... It, it felt weird that it, that it, it should have come up in some way. Yeah. Uh, all right. So then you've got the chapter where Biggs and Wedge, which is a nice little Final Fantasy VI reference for yeah. you, uh, are driving the train and you're alone on it. And um, there's this whole kind of... I, I really... One of the things that I responded to well in this game, it's just a kind of thing I like in storytelling, is when it gets really metaphysical and weirdly spiritual. And there's sure. a lot of that in the second half of this game with all the stuff in Alticia with Luna Freya and the way it frames some flashback material and, and dreams and stuff. And then you get that whole... I really like chapter 12 on the train um, with the way uh, Arden is coming in but you don't know if he's really there and kind of that back and forth and the way Shiva is like you know they're dead against the side of the train or which I thought she? was a well right which I thought was a very powerful interesting image and this whole like frozen wasteland and it feels very desolate the closer you get to the Empire which is sort of against what your expectations would be and then that whole sequence where you know Arden is harassing you and then the character Genetina who um, yeah. was working was one of the oracles working with or not one she is Luna Freya is the oracle she, she's like the oracle's familiar or that's what right. you're told she's this weird yeah. spirit lady that pops up in your picture sometimes yes which is funny that's a great trophy too yeah. <laughs> that pop but anyway and it turns out she is the spirit of Shiva did survive you couldn't literally kill the god and um, the way that whole sequence works I think is really interesting and I like that yeah. um, because it's specifically I don't know I like that one of the six god sequences is not a giant boss fight and sure, I thought yeah. the way they did that was interesting where you go out it's very desolate you fight some monsters but it's not the big fight you're expecting and the big fight winds up being something much more internalized on the train between Arden and you and Genetina who turns out to be um, Shiva so yeah. I liked all of that. It, like I thought that was okay. It didn't do much for me just because like I did, like like at some point this the the plot of this game devolved like so deeply into anime and more specifically like Final Fantasy asked like modern Final Fantasy storytelling tropes in devices in scenes and dialogue and stuff like that that like at some point just like. I feel like I've seen those kinds of scenes a billion times in a billion different things, you know, and it's just, it didn't hit me really hard. One thing that I thought was a little weird about that sequence, uh, that's not really specific about the Gentiana stuff, but the, all the stuff of like, you were riding this train over there and then like you, I think, I think you the first time you see it, this is another instance where the first time you see it isn't like a loading screen when you load up the chapters, like, and you're riding towards Shiva's cold corpse or whatever that is, she has been killed by the Empire. It's like, when the fuck did that happen? How, did, how has no one talked about, like, how did that happen? When did that happen? Why did that happen? Like, I thought for a long time, I thought that the Empire 
was using you and Lunafrena to get the gods to come out so that they could kill them because they were in hiding or whatever because you needed to summon them. Well, yeah, you do see them that they want to kill all the gods. That yeah. is established. Yeah. But like, but it seemed like you know they they wait for Noctis to meet the like Titan dude or whatever, and then they go in and kill him because he comes out, and then like they wait for Lunafrena to summon Leviathan, and so then once Leviathan is summoned, they come in and kill it or try to kill it. And then it was just like, oh yeah, and they killed Shiva. It's like, it's a number of like a bunch of different things that they like just kind of happen off screen. Although this didn't happen off screen because they didn't actually kill Shiva because Shiva was Gintiana the whole time. And so it was just like, and, and it also was one of those things where I was like, oh right, we were doing this whole thing where we were collecting all the gods at some point. Like, what happened to that plot? Like, what what did like it's. Like, it hasn't been that long since you did that the last time. That's, well, except for, well, you do that in with Leviathan, and then it cuts to several weeks later, and then it never comes up again. And so it's just like, I had kind of forgotten that, like, that was what we were originally doing. And it's one of those things that, like, if you could talk to people, it would maybe clarify, like, Ignis would say, well, without Lunafrena, we have no way of knowing where the gods are, and so right. we can't do that. But there's never, they never do that in the game and it's something where it's like there's a whole series of those sorts of like weird motivations you have of like oh we're going to get all the royal arms and that's not actually a thing for the main plot that's like that's like post game stuff for the most part and it's like okay that's weird that you tried to present this as like the core like motivating thing we are trying to do right after the kingdom falls and then that's not actually what we're trying to do because then you transition to now we're trying to like get all these six gods that nobody has ever talked about before but now we're trying to get them and then like you get a couple of them and then it's like now we're going to the empire and it's like to do what exactly and then it's like oh, we're going to the empire to get the crystal it's like because now we know that the crystal is definitely in like the heart of the empire it's like okay and it's like, now we're definitely going there because Prompto was kidnapped. I mean, we're already almost there, but now we have a really actually good reason to go there. We've just been heading there the whole time for I don't think whatever reason. Okay. Yeah, I don't think it's that stark all the time, but yeah. I I think, it, like, I was constantly just being like, why, where are we going and, like, what are we trying to do anymore? Like, once Lunafrena is killed, I feel like there had to be something of, like, would, like that, the characters need to try to do something. Like, but but I feel like you do get that. I mean, that's why they're on the train headed for the capital. There are conversations about that. But all they say is they're trying to head to the capital. They never say what they're trying to fucking do. Like, they never say we're trying to get the crystal to to, to like to 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 reestablish our kingdom. They never say we're going to go kill the emperor to like save our kingdom. They never say like because they don't find out about the demon shit and that like the crystal can defeat the demons. Until after they're already heading towards the Imperial Capital. So it's like, it feels like they are doing these actions and then they give the motivation for the action after they start committing to the action. And it's like a really weird thing that feels like there's a scene or something cut out that tells you why they are doing what they are doing and like where their objectives now lie. And you just never get that. I guess I, I don't know, maybe some of my memories of Kingsglaive are just blurring into the game because that is, you know, you do know if you've watched, like, the movie why the crystal is important, why the ring is important. They go through all of that, and I, I thought some of that was rehashed in the game. I think much more of it should have been. I mean, but... I've, I played this, like, two days ago. Like, okay. it is pretty fresh in my mind of being, like... Like, and maybe it's something that, like, if I had read a newspaper or there was a radio conversation or someone that I could have overheard that would have clarified that, but, like... That sort of like critical information that I felt like I was so aimless in the plot that I had no idea 
like what we were actually trying to accomplish anymore and it felt like really weird and, it, and it, some of it just got so muddled in like we were trying to accomplish these other things and then they just are not being addressed in any way you know like they stumble upon like the royal arm thing when they get off the train the first time it feels like how did we know that this was here like what like why like what do we even accomplish by getting these royal arms anymore like how does this address what we are trying to do with the gods like there's just a lot of weird plot things that it feels like there's not a main focus at any point okay so chapter 13 chapter 13 let's talk right. about so chapter you get 13. there i really like the scene that leads up to that where you have to get off the train with the regalia yeah. and it winds up crashing yeah. you're there um prompto not prompto prompto's already gone ignis yeah. and gladiolus wind up getting separated from you you're alone and this is you've lost all your weapons because arden has disabled that magic system uh that noctis uses and so now you're kind of at your lowest again and this is when you choose to don the ring which i thought was a cool moment for them to bring that in yeah uh, and then chapter 13 is the most different on a gameplay level because you're in this building you're trying to get to the top where the crystal is you really can't fight at the beginning at least because, except for having that crystal which has a couple different powers um so yeah, uh, say your piece, I guess. That's how it's going. Uh, so for me, chapter 13, I just found dreadfully fucking boring. Like, it just went on... I, f I swear, that thing is like 90 minutes long. Like, it is... It is it, or at least it felt longer than all the other chapters past, like, chapter 9 combined. Like, it's just... It is, definitely. It, and it's just... And you are in this really drab, basic... Like, PS2-looking fucking environment of, like, you are in this underground laboratory-like thing that's just a bunch of brown concrete, and you're just walking through there with no weapon, except for they do give you one weapon that is a weapon that can, in, like, automatically and immediately kill any enemy you run into with one power, other than, like, the invincible enemy they throw at you later. It just, it takes it, like, two seconds to do that, and you have to just charge it up, and they make it so that you cannot sprint so you are walking or like very lightly jogging through this long fucking drab facility with a number of stupid fucking like dead space ass jump scares that there are like eight or nine jump scares in this game that they try to do of you walking over a robot collapsed on the ground and the robot grabs your leg and you have to mash the circle and it's like they do that over and over again and it's just like it's so long for no fucking reason at all and like I know there are a lot of people that, like, there's a whole weird stealth mechanic that is in there, and, like, you hiding and all that shit. I didn't do any of that. I have no idea how that worked or any of that kind of stuff. I just walked through, like, five fucking halls or 500 fucking hallways and evaporating everything in my path with my ring and just kept on walking and walking and walking and walking and walking, and it just went on for fucking ever. That is my issue with Chapter 13, in, like, from a gameplay perspective. We'll talk about the story stuff later, but... Uh, I didn't feel it was that long. I know a lot of people have been describing it that way. And I, I don't know, I think I did this one in two sittings because, well, yeah, two sittings. Because when I left the podcast last week, I went home and started this chapter. Okay. And I maybe played an hour of it or so. And so I was pretty near the end. And then I had, I was tired. And I was like, if I go any further, I'm just going to have to beat the game. So I'm not going to do that right now. And then I finished it the next night. So maybe breaking it up for me. I did Since I did not play it in one sitting, maybe that alleviated some of it for me. But I also just, I don't know, um... I, I liked this section, and I liked uh, how, again, talking about bringing Noctis to his low point, you get to that low point, you're alone here, you're walking through, there's a lot of surreal elements going on with what Arden is saying to you over this loudspeaker and things yeah, like that. the fucking dozen lines that he says over and over and over again. I didn't feel like I heard... He repeats a huge amount of dialogue, if you're like, like paying attention to it. There, like, he definitely, once you hit certain points, he changes it up a little bit, but like... 
he said the same kind of lines. And, and it, I've noticed it particularly because some of those lines, they translated completely differently in English. Like, I think there was one where he says of, like, oh, like, you are so weak without your... Or like, oh, the, like, he says in Japanese, like, oh, like, you, you with your ring and your sword, this is just borrowed power. And then the English line is translated as, you can do nothing without your borrowed power. I'm like, that is the exact opposite of what he actually said. And he says that, like fucking 50 times in that sequence. Okay. It, it happens a lot. All right. Um, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe it didn't for me. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, you go through that whole part. I I liked it. I thought the the whole idea of being there with these enemies and you have the ring to just defeat them. And I actually thought, you know, the way you kind of discover those powers as you're going through and the whole thing where it opens a portal to the sky and sucks them in, yeah. I thought was interesting. And, yeah, the stealth mechanic is obviously not fully fleshed out and you don't really need to use it there's a i i do think at my level at least there were parts where i could not defeat them with the ring so like because they would kill me too fast or there would be too yeah. many yeah, so there were parts like, where i did have to engage with the stealth thing and i think sneaking through and doing some of that and trying to get to the top and then being sent back down but then like things are different the next time up as in terms of how you find you wind up finding all your friends and moving through that and getting to the top I think it was justified, maybe not to the sheer length it was. And again, I don't know if I have the best sense of that because of how I played it. Um, but especially because this is effectively very close to the climax of the game, you are trying to get to the crystal. And at this point, I felt I had a good sense of what that meant because that's the kingly power. I'm, you at that point, to. you do. That is the point where they have told you all the stuff of like, one, we need to go get Pumpto. Two, we need to get the crystal because now we know that the, like, it's not just that the crystal constructs a wall of light, that the crystal is what we need to fight against like the time of darkness in the demons because it has that power. That is when they have told you all that stuff. That is when it is clear. Okay. Uh, not until that point. Alright. Um, anyway. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I like, I, could you have, because I'm not sure how the ring operates mechanically. This is one of the things like reading people's opinions online because for people who don't know, Chapter 13 is garnered a very severe reputation online that I think like some people are talking about it way too severely but like I can I was level 60 fucking 4 so maybe my experience is really different than some people's but uh this like has gained such a reputation that Square Enix has already responded in saying they're going to patch in and make the ring more powerful or fucking whatever they're going to do to try to like which I don't like I think there's a reason I think a narrative reason he's underpowered here and I wish people wouldn't ignore that Sure. So, I mean, there's a, there's like, a narrative if there's reason. a narrative reason he's underpowered, that's fine. If, like, it's boring and really long, like, that's not fine. Yeah, I mean, but like, buffing the ring isn't going to do that. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Buffing, like, they are, you're right in the way that, like, them trying to respond to the criticisms in Chapter 13 is completely misunderstanding why people don't like Chapter 13. They don't like Chapter 13 because it is long, it is boring, and they don't like the stealth stuff. And maybe fixing the ring fixes some of the stealth stuff. And, like, I was saying, um, Reading some stuff online, it sounds like some people, like, if you are a certain level when you are here, you need to engage with the stealth stuff in a way. Or maybe they just didn't try being more combat-focused. I mean, the, like, the game does basically tell you to try to do the stealth stuff. And when it did, I said, fuck you. Like, no, I'm not you, doing that. You also don't have to do it a lot. There's there's not... I don't know. I, it's not 500 hallways. It's... If, you know. I, was, I was obviously using hyperbole there. Like, it is not literally 500 hallways, but it is long, and they are the same hallways. Like, it is just... Because you... Some of them are literally the same hallways in the sense of, like, you get to a certain point, and then you fall down, and you have to get back up to that point. But it is just, like... I found it just... Especially because of, since they they because they make it so long, and they strip out so many of your mechanics and having your friends with you and stuff that it's like... 
there are good narrative reasons to do that stuff, but like that combined with how they handled that section is like, this would have been great if it was like 15 minutes long. It is literally like 90 minutes long. It is so much longer than everything that preceded it. And most of those sections needed to be longer. This is the one that needed to be shorter. And this is fucking super long for what it is. It is long. I mean, I, not all of it is stealthily going through corridors. There's no, a whole they, large they, section at the end with boss fights. And you do have everything back. And it is this progression up the tower. I felt in the length I played it, I was totally fine with the length. I did not even know. I was surprised when people were saying that because I did not notice that as a mechanic. And I think part of that also is that, as we've established, I was much more invested in the characters and story at this point than you were. So there was something about that where I felt the atmosphere of it was effective. I think there are some stupid things in there. They don't need to do the jump scares. That adds nothing to the game. Um, It also doesn't ruin the game for me. So... It was just like, it just was piling on of just like, I think the number one thing, honestly, is that you cannot sprint. I cannot understand for the life of me. I mean, I can understand why in like the, oh, we're trying to underpower you and it's like this weird like sort of survival horror game nod that we're doing here. Like, I understand sort of like philosophically why you would make it so you can't sprint, but like, dude, like fucking... The movement speed is so slow, and like it's the same hallway, and it, like, and then having to stop like every other hallway to get jump scared on by another fucking dude. That's like it's fine the first time you did it. It's kind of fine the second time you did it. It is not fine the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. It, they did at least eight. I stopped counting after eight because I had, like I couldn't remember it anymore. Many of them are optional. You can't. Have, it's it's not sure, but there's they don't. I right, mean, right. you can jump over them or walk around some of the corpses. Like sure, but like they, it's not like they specifically indicate which one is going to jump. Scare no, I know, but I'm not. I'm just saying that's not going to be the same number for every person. It might be more for some people. Sure. Like like it's it's something where it's just. I, I, I think that some of the people's reaction to chapter 13 is excessive, although, again, I had there was literally no gameplay challenge aspect to it at all for me. Like, I was so powerful at this point that when they throw the invincible enemy at me, like, I, I found out for sure that it was invincible because I was fighting it and was like, okay, I'm going to pop some of these items, I'm going to put on this, like, sword, I'm going to fucking just straight up kill this thing, and you can't kill it. Okay. Until it, it will jump away and then it comes back with full health. It's like, goddammit. I feel I would have, I could I had in the gameplay sense with the, the the level I was at I could have killed that thing they don't they like do it. make it clear I mean I I think Arden specifically says you can't kill this thing yeah, so that. what like I, just because he says I can't kill it he thinks I'm level like forty one or something he doesn't know how powerful I really okay am. that might be more of a you problem at that point than the game's problem if the game let me do it like all I I. Didn't I just exploited the experience mechanics in the game okay. to get to level 64? Being overleveled in a game is not a new problem. No, no, I'm not blaming the game for that, but like, I'm not saying that, like, that's, I'm, the argument I'm making is that I probably enjoyed this section more because I was overleveled, so I didn't have to deal with anything in it. I could just move through it. Like, reading a lot of people's accounts online of, like, some of their experiences with that section, like, if you do try to engage with the stealth, it sounds fucking awful. Like, it, I mean, I did it a couple times and it worked fine and then you move on. And I, again, I appreciate the different ways that the game changes things up. And I found this an interesting change up enough, specifically because I think the drabness and the um, sort of repetition of it is thematically relevant to that part of the game and what you're doing. And Sure. Playing. Like, so. I've, obviously, like, me not being into the story at this point means that, like, that doesn't have a huge amount of impact on you. But, yeah, like, I... I did not like the gameplay sections of chapter 13. But then this is also where the Ravis stuff really comes up of you drop down this hole 
and his body is there, and they they executed him and buried him with his diary because there's three pieces of paper on the ground right next to him that like feel like another sort of element of like patchwork narrative because there's no point in the game where they ever do something like that. Like you have some of the books and newspapers that you can read, but like that's so weirdly direct. And that's like another thing that is one of the other things that they've talked about in patching the game. And like I don't want to make this about like them like talking about them patching the game, but this is another one of like the weirdly conspicuous things of like we are going to address that or, or, or at least we're going to make it clear why he's there because it, like that information is buried there in the game but it's like it is so buried that like when it comes up in a main plot thing like even when i knew that he had been executed i was still like oh that's weird because i was kind of expecting this like oh he was executed but maybe he escaped with his life and he'll yeah. like talk to you or something but no there should be a cutscene explaining yeah. that stuff that's i agree i mean yeah because that's just one of the elements that adds to the the chapter 13-ness of it, of just, like, what? Like, why is he dead here? Like, what what is going on here with the story? But so, anyways, let's cut to the end of the chapter where, you you know, you go through all the stuff, and then you get Prompto back, and this is one of the story things I really want to talk about. What the fuck were they trying to do with Prompto saying that he's from Niflheim? This is also a severe issue with the dub, where the dub implies that he is a whatever they call him, Madohe, the, like, magic trooper. Right. They, like, the dub implies that he's one of those. In Japanese, all they say is that he's from Niflheim. Yes, he's that's Niflheim important. Team. Yeah. So, why is that important? Like, why, why, like, that was one of the most, like, inexplicable, just, like, okay moments in, in the entire plot to me. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, I think definitely there needed to be more of that. It's, it's kind of a drive-by thing where they do that, and then you feel like maybe they're going to do more with it, and they don't. It's, you know, it's a it's a heightening and a next step of his whole feeling of alienation from these people that sure. he's not actually Lucian, and he's been passing that off. Uh, and so, you know, from a plot standpoint, it's because he has this power that... Um, he Ar- can open the door. He can open the door, and Arden and the other Empire people would not have expected Noctis and his team to have that power, right? Because yeah. they thought they were all from Luchus. So, but it turns out he was like an immigrant to Luchus, and so they have that. Um, and it's not necessarily like it creates a plot hole or anything. It's just this thing it's that comes like in. It's just like weirdly and- distracting and feels... Because it, because it never comes up again. It never like, comes up again. There's a nice moment where they're, you know, they try to explain, well, we don't care. And it kind of ties that up. What it needed to be is there had to be some kind of establishing scene where it's like, Prompto has a secret and he yeah. doesn't want to tell Noctis this. And maybe like Noctis and other guys, like maybe like them saying something that made him feel like, oh, I can't tell them. Because it's something where it's like, if you play or if you've watched Brotherhood and also if you've got the motel scene with Prompto earlier in the game, you know... Noctis has basically known him since they were in elementary school. Why would he give a fuck that this dude is from quote unquote Niflheim when he's grown up his entire life in Lucis? Like it just felt like a if maybe and I thought like for a second that maybe this is going to like Gladiolus was going to be from Niflheim or something because they have that weird sequence that now we know is just a hook in for DLC of him leaving your party and coming back with a scar. I kept on waiting for that to be like, oh, he's like a secret agent or something and this is going to come back around. But like we know specifically that Noctis has known Prompto for most of his life. It's like, of course he doesn't give a shit. That would be like, I, that would be like if like you know the two kids who grew up together their whole lives in America like in the forties and then one of them was like, hey man, I got so or like it would be like in Saving Private Ryan. You have the church scene with Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks is sitting there and I've got something to tell you guys. My mom was born in Germany. It's like, yeah. 
that doesn't mean you're a Nazi. No fucking shit. Like, fine. Like, yeah, yeah. You're, like, biologically, you're from this region. You, like, lived your whole life with us. Like, who gives a shit? Like, there's no reason for them to be prejudiced against them. The, de- the game never gives you a reason to think that they would be. Yeah. Uh, it's a small moment. It didn't detract from things, but it didn't add anything yeah. either. So it's kind of a... it, it's like it's just one of those things where if like for me the plot and all that stuff was already not working, like those small things that are just like what is going on, like those have like have a cumulative impact that was like really kicking me out of the story, you know? Okay. So yeah. So then we get to the final scenes in chapter yes. thirteen yeah. where he we. Uh, it's pretty dramatic what happens where all the monsters come in and you're fighting and you're fighting but you can't beat them so your friends tell you you have to go on to the crystal I could have beaten them okay just well, want to point that out you get the point anyway yes. um, yeah so uh, what was I saying so yeah you go on to try to get to the crystal you get there um, it's a pretty again this is I think a point where I liked that we're getting back to like the breathless pace you get to the crystal and then I think there's a pretty interesting scene I, I like the whole scene with Bahamut and the revelation sure, of what yeah. Noctis is real purpose is and kind of tying up together a lot of this lore this is also where Arden's actual identity is revealed that he was the first king of Luchus and is sort of I don't know if they say he's directly like in uh, Nautis is one of his descendants but the whole idea that he was the king who sort of took the dark path and brought all the demons into himself and he is the one um, controlling all of this he's immortal and so then Noctis is brought into the crystal to basically be trained and transformed in this way. And that's where we wind up getting afterwards the 10-year the time jump. But that was another sequence that I found uh, very powerful and I liked on an, uh, certainly on an aesthetic level. And I thought on a narrative level was a good moment of payoff. And I think the specific revelation of what um, Noctis has to do to be the true king was interesting. Because that's a thing that we're building up the whole game of reclaiming your throne being the, the king of kings, or however they translate that, um, however you want to say that. Um, and specifically, it is about that return sacrifice. I liked that a lot. And I thought that was... An, and I think the way... Like, I think there's the character animation in this game is just so good. Yeah. And some of those moments where... this Usually, I think Noctis is really driven by that vocal performance, because I think it's great. But that's actually a scene where he's mostly silent. And as it dawns on him, and again, the weight of... You know, this is... And then we talked about this last week. The thing that makes Noctis interesting is he's a kid. And yeah. so you have, and this is why I find a lot of these parts, including chapter 13, interesting, is that weight that is put on him and put on him, and he is not always, you know, he cannot always deal with it fully, but the thing that makes him heroic in this game is that he tries and he keeps moving forward, and we get to this point where he learns what his fate is going to be, and kind of quietly accepts it there. I found that all very interesting, and then the way it kind of throws that curveball where he's sucked into the crystal, and then we kind of cut to black, and the chapter ends, and you're kind of wondering what's going to happen next. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I, I'm fine with all the Bahamut stuff. Like, I think, like, you know, it's, it's a bit like, like it was some of the stuff in the, this section of the game with the Final Fantasiness of it is like, okay, yeah, like this is where the god. If you have like this long, like, bit of exposition where he tells you all this stuff, I didn't have much of an issue with it. I didn't love the Arden reveal that much, just because I felt like it's not set up by anything like you never hear at anything earlier in the game about like a legend of the first king of Lucis who who made a pact with demons or something like it just feels like it's such a just like oh and by the way like like obviously like i my theory the whole time was that he was like the sixth god that we hadn't met yet but then that's ifrit so i was like kind of half right with that guess but like this just sort of like, oh yeah, and I am like this thing and this this thing and this is why I'm mortal and demons and blah blah blah. It's just like, yeah, like you can just tell us all of that, but it's one of those like, you need to have set it up in some way and like give me some context for it to feel impactful because it's all just kind of like made up bullshit for the it, plot. I, I guess so. That's 
yeah, I mean, it worked for me on the level of you're going through the whole game wondering what he is and what his motivations are, and it felt organic to that in so much as it made sense as a motivation for him sure. and who he is. It didn't. I mean, I agree. There's probably with a lot of things in this story, there are things they could have done to seed more of it and set it up. But I don't feel like it comes out of left field in a way that makes me feel like I yeah, wasn't it, watching that character. It doesn't make it come out of left field. It just it doesn't have a lot of narrative impact. And it just felt like a really sort of cliche JRPG anime kind of like, of course you are the immortal king from the beginning of the kingdom who is also made a pact with the demons like like who who wants to defeat Noctis when he has the power of the crystal. So that's why like it's just like it's such a... Like, it's, like, his motivations and his identity are so completely unrelatable in any way that just, like, it just came across as, like, generic, cliche Final Fantasy villain to me. Okay. So, uh, chapter 14? Yes, chapter 14. So we start, this is actually, I think, a really nice touch that Noctis, you know, he's been asleep for a long time. You don't know how long for a little while. But he wakes up, basically, in this, like, little island prison. And I love that it's the island you see off the coast of Golden Quay. Yeah. And if you've, you know... Played the game for a good amount of time. You've seen that a ton. And just and been like, what the fuck is that weird looking big rock thing out there? Right. And it's it's one of a number of things I really love in the design of the world. Where you have these things in the distance and you're like, what is that? And you do actually, either you can go directly explore it or it becomes part of the story in that way. Like those things don't feel like they're there at random. Which is something I really sure, like yeah, about yeah. the open world. Like a lot of the most like outrageous things about the design like the whole uh, disc and things like that and the rock of ravito all those things are not there just for show they actually become parts of the game and i like that yeah. so that's another touch here that i liked he winds up taking his father's boat back we're in this world of darkness for a while you're maybe you weren't because you were super powerful but anyway i was very overwhelmed could not beat those demons with the you hit a point where it's like they were throwing like level 70 80 demons at you and it's like right. okay 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 so even I can't for you yeah, they, yeah. okay so anyway, yeah, so there's a lot of demons that you can't kill, and you're just trying to get as far as you can. For a while, I thought they were going to make you walk all three miles, yeah. which they don't. I think that's actually an effective turnaround that the, the kid cut winds up coming up, the yeah. kid that you had met a bunch of Talcott. times. Talcott. Talcott, uh, who's, who's now an adult, and he's got his truck, and, he's gonna, and he kind of fills you in on things and brings you back, and that's where you meet your buds again, and they've been out hunting monsters for these ten years. Um, yeah, and then it's off to finish the game yeah this is the section to me the the most that felt like there was going to be more here fleshing out this that like because they like they so put you like on rails get you like put you in this car with talcott get you up to hammerhead and then like you have like the immediate little tiny like hammerhead rest area to walk around in and then that's it and it just felt like you know, they talk about, like, oh, Sydney is in this world, and Sid is here, and Iris is, like, doing all this stuff and organizing these hunters. And I was just, like, the whole time, I was like, oh, this is, like, going to be really cool because I'm going to get to see, like, like maybe get to do some, like, side quests and, like, in this, like, upside-down version of the, the open world, so to speak. Or, like, the, you know, it's, like, going to the future in Ocarina of Time or something. Like, I wasn't expecting something quite on that scale, but I was like, okay, like, I want to go meet Dave with his dog and Frog Lady and the, like, weird reporter dude. Like, I want to go, like, see, like, the, the woman who works, like, the, the power plant at the city. Like, I want to meet all these people and, like, see what this world has become and, like, and, like, to give you that sense of, like, now I have to actually step up to be the king, like, as a king. It's one of the things I don't love about this story is it does the thing where it's, like, 
the king is not a political figure. He's like this weird sort of like abstract concept where it's like, not this never becomes a king. He never rules over anything. He never like has political power or authority. He doesn't have to make those decisions. He's like a symbolic sacrificial king. I kind of wish you had, would have had this mo this moment because there's a great opportunity here to like be in your kingdom with your people and, and like be a symbol to them and come up to them and be like, okay, I'll go with in there and like kill these demons and get the power plant on. And it's like, okay, like I'll figure out like, like frog lady is doing research on how to like defeat the demons. Cause you find some pieces of paper where they're like doing scientific research, but they never specifically say it's frog lady, but it's like, okay, like that would be, there's so many opportunities here to do really cool stuff that would have made that section of the game really impactful to me that it's just like felt like, like, like they box you off so tightly because it's like so clear that like they didn't build anything out and it's, it's almost kind of frustrating that they tell you all these things that's cool that's going on in the world of like Sydney and all that stuff and you don't get to actually see it and interact with it and like have it impact you directly in any way it's tough this is a part where I'm conflicted because I don't know how much I wanted them to slow down because I feel like I don't know. I, I don't know if I wanted a full like open world part. Sure. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wanted more. I think specifically what I wanted more of at this point, and I I think you wind up getting it by the end once you're back in Insomnia and some of the stuff that happens there. But with the three friends, I and in fact they have the scene. They choose to play it in the middle of the credits. Yeah. And I don't know a hundred percent how I feel about that choice because I think it's a powerful scene, and I kind of I do understand thematically why they chose to play it there. I think I would have kind of liked if they had played that scene right, like when they do the camping, like when it actually happens chronologically in the story, um, because I think it would have been good to have a little bit more of that. Because I understand that the, he comes back and he's the king. It's like, all right, we're going to go finish this shit. I do understand that. But this is also a game that did not necessarily value urgency all that much when yeah. you were in Luchas before. So, yes, I could totally see also having... Um, again, I don't think it would work to have the full like open world back or something like that, but at least certain things you yeah, could like go at do least to... go to that city, you know, like yeah. like have a couple of missions or something, and or like even if there aren't missions, like do the th like this is actually like it's like a weird thing they do in the post game, but you have that like the mission that introduces the giant mountain monster or whatever that like brings all the side quest characters together. That's yeah. like. You know, they're not much of characters, but you do get more of, like, get a sense of who they are, kind of, by doing the fetch quests over and over and over again. And it's like, you know, even if I, like, very kind of begrudgingly accepted their side quests, whether begrudging or not, like, I built up a rapport with some of those characters and I identified with some of them. It's like, okay, like, I know what Dave looks like. I know Frog Lady. Like, I, I know yeah. your power plant lady. Like, I like these people. I, like, it is mostly relegated to Talcott telling you about it. Yeah. Although the one detail I do really like, this is like something that only if you did this, uh, and since I did so much of the side quest stuff I did, is there's a, I'm not even sure if it's a full on side quest or it's just something they tell you you can do, but Talcott is like assembling a, co a collection of cactuar figures yep. and you can give him your cactuar figures. And when you're riding in his car, when you go first person, all of his cactuar figures are on the dash of the car. Yeah, it's a, nice it's a really nice touch. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. I like that's that. like, and that's like the kind of thing I wanted more of because it's specifically because I had spent so much time in the open world before going to the the end of the game that like I think that would have legitimately had a lot of impact on me of like actually leveraging that time I had spent in the open world of like hey since you did all these quests like you should you you deserve to know what has happened to these people in this world and what they're doing and how you have changed their lives it feel it felt like a huge hole in like what the story wanted to be about thematically and like like of like 
having that journey you took through that open world really like matter in a direct way and have that come back up like uh, even just something small would have meant a lot to me i agree on that i mean i think to me chapter 14 works outstanding in terms of wrapping up noctis and the relationship with his friends and that stuff and i think it honors that side of it very well i agree that the larger scope of the open world you want that there it's sort of like a difference, and this is not a direct comparison by any means, but when you think of like the Lord of the Rings theatrical cuts versus the extended cuts. Sure. And how the theatrical cuts, it's very much, it's about Frodo's journey, and that's the thing it zeroes in on, and that's kind of how they choose what they're going to keep and what they're going to cut. And in the extended cut, and I think why people respond to those versions better, is it widens that scope. So like, for instance, in the scene in Lothlorien, uh, in the theatrical cut, you only see the gift that she gives to Frodo, which is yeah. the Evanstar. Not the Evanstar, the light not yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, Aragorn has the Evan star anyway um, but if the, it is a fine mistake to make I'm not okay. going to blame you for calling um, it the Evan star I'm not, I'm not Stephen Colbert I don't know yeah. all of this by heart um, oh God, he had an interview with Martin Freeman oh I haven't seen it yet it's so funny because he brings up at one point that he's a fan of Tolkien and Martin Freeman just is like God stop talking about it it's very funny anyway that is my playful, favorite but. thing that this is like a weird uh, side thing but I, my favorite thing about Stephen Colbert is when he just drops the most insane hot fucking like Silmarillion bullshit of just yes. like looking name like all the different like gods of Middle Earth and like all like the all like their like specific identities and how they changed and like yeah. what they represented. It's like, oh my god! Like, Stephen Colbert is the only man in the entire universe who has ever read the Silmarillion all the way through. No one else has ever done it. No one has ever managed. <laughs> he fucking does it every Saturday. He, I'm sure he didn't just read it. He memorized exactly. it. exactly. He can recite it. No, uh, but what I was saying is in the extended cut of Fellowship of the Ring, you have that scene in Lothlorien where all nine gifts are yeah, departed, get, given to the members of the you, Fellowship. Gimli gets his lock of hair. Like, yeah. that's one of my favorite scenes in that whole movie. Yes. Yeah, so things like that, and so that's why it feels like a richer experience. So it's. It's, again, obviously the Lord of the Rings in any form tells a more coherent story than Final Fantasy XV. But what I was saying is that it does feel to me like, um, from my experience, I feel like the game, the main through line with Noctis, Gladiolus, Ignis, Prompto, and what goes from beginning to end with them, that affected me emotionally and worked me over there. There's a lot of stuff on the sides with lore and different pieces of characters and some of the open world stuff that I wish was built out more. Kind of in that same sense of like, that's what you miss if you go back and watch the Lord of the Rings in its theatrical form. It's like, it works. I get the story and I get the Frodo's through line, but I don't get Gimli and Legolas and their friendship or something like yeah. that. So that's, yeah, that's where I come down on that. I do, because I think it's a cool idea. I like the design of the world at the end when it's yeah. dark. And, you know, mostly it is about the ruined city of Insomnia. Um, and, yes, they could have leveraged more of the actual world you spent time in. Yeah, because so. also, like, cause there's just so many good ideas. It's such a rich opportunity because it's like having to live in the world that is all night because they have been building that up a little bit through the story of like oh the night's getting longer and, and all that kind of stuff and it literally like, gets longer as you play yeah yeah and both mechanically and just like sort of narratively they address it and then in like in the future world you go to it is night all the time it's like or or like they tell you it is night all the time and that's one of the things that's frustrating about it is that there are parts of the game where the gameplay mechanics are so strong of like like in unique things about the cooking and the photography and all that stuff and some of those things like the cooking and the photography they pay off on really well through the narrative and some of those things that they are set up so well of like basic things about the day night cycle and and that kind of stuff is just like there are opportunities that you could have used that so well and like missing them just it, it it sucks because, again, like, I've, obviously I have been dissing on this game a lot because I don't like the story stuff. But, like, a lot of this game I really love in the gameplay side of it, in the open world side of it. And it's like, 
there's so much rich material for them to work off of in the setting and the game mechanics that it's like not making full use of that feels like a tragedy to me in some places of like it could have been so much better yeah I get it um okay I, God, I was gonna say something about that you were talking about anyway I forgot we can move on. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So we're moving on. So we get the the, the the friends come together. They have one last camp out. So you can do your last cooking if you want to do yeah. that. Get a final buff. I, I, I think I made the thing because I had enough stuff for it because I did that berry quest. I did the, made Noctis' food that Ignis... It's only important if you fucking play Brotherhood to you, but Ignis has been trying to make this dessert that Noctis had when he was a kid. Oh, I didn't know that time. was in the game. That's kind that of cool. is the berry quest. I like. I don't know how how you trigger to get it. I don't know if you have to do something special, but the woman at Golden Quake. Yeah, I have quest. it. Yeah. Uh, to get that berry, you have to uh, do the carrot garden thing at the base by the lighthouse, and then there's a merchant that comes. And if you give him some carrots, he'll give you a berry, and then you go back to the lady, and that's the that's the payoff on a thing that is in the spinoff anime of this video game. I, I don't mind something like that as much because that's a side quest. But they, they kind of yeah, but I mean, since they bring it up and they like directly address it in the game when he eats it, it's just like you never talked about it in the video game. Someone someone slipped up and forgot to mention that at somewhere like when you started the quest or something because it's like oh, it's not a big deal, but it's a weird sort of larger issue with like the game's use of sort of spinoff material to sort of supplement or replace them doing like narrative work in the actual game mm-hmm. but yeah but that like that was a fun again like to talk about like using the mechanics of the game effectively to tell story stuff and like character stuff is like i was able to express that through my play of being like i had this ingredient and i never i have not actually made it i only got the recipe i'm going to make it on my last night and I, it gives you i forget what it it gives you actually like some like weird like magic thing that was is not actually a super useful ability yeah. i made uh i think it was the toad stick st- toad stick pot stickers which i made a lot because i had a lot of that and they gave you pretty good boost it was like level 10 on hp magic and stamina or something yeah so. yeah like my thing i think i think it was like it reduced your attack damage but increased your magic damage which is like that's not super helpful, so I actually had to like kind of stand a while around it and wait for it to complete. And I was like, okay, now I can actually go fight this boss. No, mine was helpful. But anyway, so you have that moment, and they change into their Kingsglaive attire, their yeah. Kingsguard attire. And I really like that as a touch, because I think, just like, you know, they're getting back to the city. It's been a long fucking journey to get there, and now yeah. they put on the, the clothes, and they look badass, and I like that. Yeah, that's another area where it's like, you know, it's not an issue for us, because we did watch Kingsglaive, but like... If you did not watch Kingsglaive, you have spent no time in that city at all, you know? So it's like, yeah. there's something weird about that, like, coming home effect exists only for, like, you having watched the movie and knowing what the city is like, and then, like, it the game a... doesn't deliver that sort of organically. Yeah. I really do, I, I've been thinking about this, how you could improve that aspect of it, of, like, the basis of things with Insomnia. Yeah. And I, I do understand their reasoning in deciding we're just going to start you off in the open world. I mean, it is such a powerful opening to it's, have them push It is a really the, good opening. You know, so it's, it's like, how else do you want to do that? Maybe it's an insert flashback kind of thing of... And I also understand why they want Noctis out in the world when Insomnia falls. There is certain narrative sense to that. I do think their initial instinct um, that is in that initial trailer, if you go back and watch it from four years ago now, of that the game would start in Insomnia and you would be there for the fall and then have to leave... That would obviously change and recolor a lot of the open world stuff. Although they, then maybe you could more directly address of like 
something like, well, it's fallen, but what else are we going to do? We yeah. kind of just, we're going to have to live out here on the lamb for a while. You could do something like that. I do think if there was some gameplay thing where you are in Insomnia at the beginning, then you go open world, then we take the open world away again, and we're back in the linear stuff, that bookend effect might work stronger. But then again, I love the opening to this game, so I don't I, know what I to think, say. The, for me, in my mind, like the answer to that is just to have a projected, protracted, more elaborate opening where you start the way the game starts... But then it's like a little bit more directed that forces you that like when you stop at a motel or something like it forces you to do a playable flashback sequence of Noctis at home. Like and maybe that's how they tutorialize some stuff in the game because that's another that weird part good. of the, the game is that they don't like the tutorial exists outside the like diegetic universe of the game. And I never played that. I felt like I, I, got I played like the first two minutes of it and was like, oh, wait, no, I know how to play this game. Like I'm yeah. not going to do this. Okay. Yeah. Because um, I thought the initial missions gave it to you well enough. Sure, yeah, but like it's like I, th- I think like in my mind that would work well as a, like an opening that would get across the story stuff you need. I agree. Like both I... the exposition and the sense of like Noctis's, both Noctis's identity as like an urban, like as someone who was raised in an urban environment that I think is very important to a lot of the stuff the open world deals with, with Noctis and his crew being these urban boys, these city boys. That are now out into the country, and like since the game never really establishes directly what city life is like in this universe, it's the sort of that can get a little muddy. I just think like having some amount of time spent in Insomnia while it was still there at the beginning would have done a lot to sort of like shore up some of the thematic holes that the game has. No, totally, because that is to me story wise the weakest part is those holes near the beginning that I have because I watched the movie and the anime, but I wish they were in the game in some way. And I think that's actually a good idea of like if at different junctures it just sent you back, and they could even recreate some of the Brotherhood stuff that way, where yeah. like the training could be with Gladiolus, which does the Gladiolus episode. The training for cooking could be something with Ignis, something with Prompto would you know prompt all of that. And things like, you know, you know I didn't mean to say that. I, I did, didn't know I did it earlier it. in the okay. podcast, too. It's very easy okay. to do. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I think they could have done some of those things. But, yeah. So, anyway, the final stuff in Insomnia is you're there. Jesus Christ, the music in this section is very unbelievable. Good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're, 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 you, know, you have to go through, you fight some enemies. There's a really tough enemy early on, which I actually think is the toughest boss in the main story. Yeah, the, even if, like, me being overleveled, I forget, like, it's like, I think it's a behemoth or something. Yes. It's like, yeah, it's in there, and it's just an enemy walking around in, like, the world, and you're just like, holy shit, this thing is fucking hard. Like, it's the hard, it, for me, it was definitely the hardest enemy in that sequence of the game. Absolutely, and I actually think, I like how they did that, though, where, like, when it's over, like, you have this, like, breathing room, and then the characters are commenting on, like, God, I haven't done that in a while, yeah. or something like that. Like, that was tough, but we're getting back into it. And I actually think that's maybe us. Maybe it didn't need to be that hard, but I think throwing that at you right away was kind of an interesting thing to raise the stakes for that section. Yeah. Uh, then you have the big Ifrit fight, which is actually ties back to that first, like, flash-forward that's at the beginning of the right, game. Right, yeah, yeah. That's where the game meets the where it started. Yeah. Um, and you learn that Ifrit has specifically been working for Arden, and so this is where you meet the sixth god, and you have that big fight, which is also technically just amazing, and I really liked that section. Um, yeah. I think it's an interesting Was boss fight. Was that boss fight, like, mechanically difficult for you? Because, like, it, I breezed through it, but I couldn't tell if that was because it was an easy fight or I was just so over-leveled. Um... I think you were definitely overleveled because well, I was it, definitely it, overleveled, but like I was trying yeah. to say, I think that had an effect okay, because yeah. I didn't find it like. Look, I actually have never died in combat in this game. I yeah, never encountered either. a game over screen, so the only game over screens I had were with the flying regalia. Yeah, me too. And even that one was like I parked and I was like kind of off the road and it hit game screen. I'm like game over screen. I'm like what? Like I, you could just 
fucking get on back on the road. It's fine. What the fucking game over? Like, I didn't crash into a ball of fire, which I know you can do. I, I did that the first time, definitely. Anyway, but yeah, so... Uh, it's not the hardest thing, but I mean, I, I found I had to be using strategy. I had to be using my items judiciously. I actually, the only thing, I wish they had one more part where you could buy items because I was out of items by the end of the Ifrit I fight. I think you, oh, after the Ifrit fight, yeah, because you can buy fight. them when you're at Hammerhead. Yes, sure. um, but after the, but I had kind of, I thought I bought what I needed, but then the Ifrit fight was harder than I thought. So I did have to go back in time really briefly and just buy shit and then yeah. go back, which actually to me was like, Unplanned, but a beautiful little moment of seeing old Luchas again. But I wasn't going there to like play a bunch of stuff, and then I was back for the final fight. I just I, there was something about that that like worked very well for me thematically, even though I was just doing that. Like that was not a canon piece of the story to me. That was just me yeah. buying items for the fight with Arden at the end, which you don't really need because that fight is it's like it's not automatic or anything, but it's specifically yeah, not yeah. like a super tough. Like, Ifrit is the final boss in terms of, like, challenge. So, yeah, I think you were probably overleveled if you found it a complete breeze, because it took me a while, and I definitely had to be on my toes, but it wasn't like that one with, like, yeah. the, the thing right before it where I was like, oh, fuck, I actually have to rethink how I'm playing this game. Yeah, yeah. I, and I do want to elaborate. Like, me saying that fight was a breeze is not me saying that I didn't enjoy it. Like, like I said earlier, I... My favorite part about this combat is when I am way overpowered for a fight. And it's just like, I just decimate stuff. Because I find the very difficult fights in this game, they rely way too much on you having to stop and be like, okay, like use a high elixir on prompto. And like, like there's like, it, it, like the pacing of fights is really weird when there's a lot of status effects and you have to go into your item menu a lot. And I don't really like that that much. But I do really like just like the big flashy ridiculous like oh I'm fighting this massive fucking thing and I'm just like darting all over the place and throwing magic fireballs at his ass and like fucking Prompto is shooting all this shit and then Gladiolus is doing like this double somersault and Matt hitting him with this giant sword like that stuff is fucking awesome. I love that stuff and I think the Ifrit fight is just amazing on that level there's especially being like in the center of insomnia the throne room is right beyond you're near the capital one of the Warp points is even like at the top of the Capitol building, and then you can come back down. It is flashy as hell. It feels like a really great climax to the game. And then everything past that, I really love too, with um, you getting into the throne room and you have that fight with, or you have that encounter with Arden. He knocks out your friends, and so it's just going to be one on one. And I like how that whole fight progresses. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how, probably want to dive into the ending. I found this whole section of the game really overwhelming, and the thing that did it for me where I was kind of surprised by how hard this hit me, was when you're about to walk in and confront Arden, um, Noctis turns around and says, Prompto, do you still have our photos? And he says, I do. And so you look through and you see your whole journey. Yeah. And you can pick one photo out, which has a very specific um, use later on. And that hit me really hard. Like, that's one of those moments when I say, when I think this game is on, it is so on. And for me, it worked me over so much because I think... The way that comes back and you see your whole, um, you know, photo line and your whole timeline of the game back from the beginning to now and you're thinking about, you know, everything you've done, that is one of those moments where it clicked for me, where there are absolutely problems along the way, there are things that don't work structurally and narratively and gameplay-wise once in a while, 
or not once in a while, but, you know, frequently. Um, but when I got to that point, it just clicked. There's things about, like, the specific structure of having that open world and that being this space of, like, nostalgia where there is some light plot stuff going on, but overall that is still you and your friends out on your road trip trying to figure out what to do, but it is kind of these halcyon days, and then it moves on, and you've gone to these low points, and now you've gone through those ten years in the crystal, and you're back, but that friendship you had is ultimately the thing that brought you to that point. And beyond any narrative things to me, the gameplay foundation with all of that is so strong and so encourages you to have a connection to those characters that is so much, you know, in the eye of the beholder, it is what you make of it, that when it asks you to do that again at that moment and remember whatever your personal relationship with that game was up until now, I found that really powerful and clever. And if this is not the game that has used that idea, or if this, is, if this game did not use that idea perfectly... I really am excited to see the open world games that are influenced by this and maybe can build on that and say we could have an open world game that goes off and does something else at the end and uses that structure in a way that is different because I absolutely think this game uses its structure in a way that is so different than anything I've ever played. And I know it didn't work for you, but it did work for me. And, you know, I I actually, I do look forward to whatever game in the future is influenced and uses it even better because I found that really overwhelmingly powerful at the end. Yeah, I mean, like I said, my favorite part about the game is the open world and, like, the mechanics and those specific weird mechanics they build out. And, like, you know, like, I, I felt like you see that picture mechanic and you know, like, okay, like, I know what you're going to do with this at some point, but, like... But yeah, like, it's, it is a very effective moment. The thing that, like, is frustrating about it to me is that, like, it's so clearly in, like, divided, like, okay, yeah, like, that, like, for me, the good part of the game and then the, like, frustrating part of the game of, like, the, the main story stuff. And it kind of highlighted, like, th- how much of a weird distinction there is there of, like, so much happens in such a compressed timescale in the plot once you leave the open world and like that's like you don't have any pictures from that time there's like something weird about like 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 they here's actually another trick they miss is like prompto doesn't have any pictures from after noxus left like there's like stuff like that of that like i feel like there's something weird about that made me feel like the open world part of the game existed in like another world like it's just like it's so far away and feels so disconnected from the actual plot of this sto- uh, of the story of this game that's like i have this like this sort of emotional attachment to this game and my memories of playing this stuff and my enjoyment of this stuff but it feels so diverse or di- uh, divorced at this point from like what is actually happening anymore that it's like i'm so far away from being like 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 I'm into these characters in like the sense of like I like them along with me and them joking around in the car I but I like I kind of don't care about Gladio and Ignis and Prompto in the cutscenes of the game anymore because to me like it has lost the magic that it had earlier like like even like and it's not just that it gets darker it's that like I think it loses its touch of like having something in those characters that like you can identify that is like recognizable and like like you can pull out and they start just becoming like plot things that like exist in this world and they don't have the character that anymore to them or at least it felt like to me that they used to have and even when like so like that moment worked effectively for me in a lot of ways because it was like this reminiscent moment of like looking back on my nostalgia of these other sections of the game but it also put in stark relief for me how dissatisfied i was by everything i had played basically like that day and the day before of this like linear section of the game that i just think they did not handle very well at all 
And I guess because that part of the game mostly worked for me, even if I have problems with parts of it, um, I think that sense of distance is powerful there because it's, it is this point of no return and this no going back of like you are looking at something that is distinctly in the past and these characters are never going back to it. Like you're going to in the post game, but that's yeah. a different thing. Um, but like specifically these characters, this is, you know, Noctis is looking at that because he knows he's about to die. Yeah. And that, you know, this is going to be it and this is something that he's not going back to. And so I think that distance of like feeling about how far we've come from that, um, that's why it worked for yeah. me. So. I, I think for me, like more specifically, like what it, how it affected me was like me feeling like, oh, the Noctis and the Prompto and the Gladio and Ignis in these pictures are not these people because these are the people that existed in the gameplay. These are not the people that existed in the plot because the plot was never this stuff. The plot of the game, like the actual events, the character dialogue, like all that stuff of like that revolved around all this, it's the main issue with them not making more of the of like road trip part of the game sort of like more sort of like elaborately written and designed into the overall plot is that when we get to this moment for me like those two things are not the same thing to me like like all my time spent in the open open world dealing with the main quests that are like demarcated and like are clearly different than everything else like those felt like something totally different than everything else I was doing because they were existed in this world of like the six gods and like all this like time pressure and lunafrena and all this stuff and then the open world stuff was me going around and like having my buddies joke around in the back of the car while I was listening to Final Fantasy soundtracks and going to go fish somewhere and play, like getting some random monster side quest to go do that. And those two things do not coexist together in any way that makes any fucking sense. It's like it's it's one of the things that's an issue with specifically the way this game handles it that like uh, tension of the main plot requires action to move forward and that action is urgent. And the gameplay systems that are fun that you want to engage with rely on the fact that there is no urgency anymore because you're having fun palling around with your bros and going on camping trips and stuff. And to me, like, those two things just cannot coexist and they never found a way to narratively co-opt those, like, the interesting game mechanics they had to actually wrap back into the story. It's like the story, the main story was, like, leeching off of these interesting game mechanics they had instead of, like, those two things sort of, like, blooming together and, like, creating something better, like, the, 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 the sum of its parts or, like, the two individual pieces, whatever. All right. I said my piece, so let's go ahead and move what, on. What picture did you pick? I picked a picture that was the four of us um, with our chocobos. Okay. Yeah, I, I picked the one that feels like is the one you're kind of supposed to pick is the one you pick of all of you guys before you leave to go to the Altissi or whatever and you have like Iris and all the people in the picture. That's the one I picked. Yeah, I mean, I picked the one that I just felt like that was most representative of everything I did. And, you know, to me, I, I agree that there is some division between... I do wish the story found a better way to leverage the open world while you are in the open world part. But ultimately, all of that stuff did come together for me, especially in that space of memory and everything. So that one just felt like that was very poignant of like... Also, if you're saying like, what is a moment Noctis like treasures most at this point, like for me in that role-playing sense of like, it's what he wishes he could go back and do, which is him and his bros with the chocobos out in the wilderness. Yeah. And that felt very powerful to me. A part of me really wanted to just pick a picture of Aranea. And, like, have that be, like, like in my own weird fantasy version is, like, Noctis was actually has been in love with her the entire time because she has this really great voice. And, like, everyone, really like, he up. sees him, they, everyone else sees him take that picture and they're like, what? 
Why are you like like Prompto has all these stacks of them all happy together, like pictures of like Lunafrena and like all this stuff. It's like that's what Knox is like. What what are you saying? Like what? Why why did you take that one? Or it's like a picture of like Dave or something like just like some totally random thing. Hurley from Lost. Yeah, Hurley from. Lost. I thought you were gonna say one of uh, Prompto's random battle photos where yeah. nothing looks makes sense. Yeah, it's just like like yeah, like Noctis is sort of like upside down and like half outside of the frame, and then there's like a big goblin face in the front left of the frame that's obscuring everything. Yeah. All right. So the final scenes, you fight Arden. I think it's a pretty cool fight the way that's yeah. done because it's back into like you're in full armature mode, and it's like it feels like a satisfying battle between those two characters. And then when he is defeated, um, at least in body, there's a spirit defeat that's going to go later. I really love the final cutscenes in this game. I think when Noctis goes and like takes that throne. That felt to me very satisfying of like the end of this road. That's what it is. And I like symbolically how that's tied together. And the way just like as he's sitting you have kind of the ghost of his father off to the side. I think it's just stunningly directed. And then the way you know he sits and this is his duty and the ring starts lighting up. And like he's struck by basically all of the um, the weapons that you found. The different um, royal arms. Uh, yeah like it's specifically it's the ghost of the kings from right. Kingsglaive. That is like because it's that ring, you know. The, yeah. Like the, that's another one of the weird parts where it's like, like you have like I had to like in the back of my head be like, right? If you did not watch Kingslave, some of this stuff would be like. But I did watch Kingslave, so yeah, exactly, I, I agree yeah. it's not perfect, but it, that doesn't change the effect it had. Yeah, on yeah, no. So anyway, and then I think so that whole scene is just really powerful. So much of this is you cannot deny the effect Yoko Shimomura has on this game. No, yeah, and you know I don't. You'd want to just keep that in the background. Like the music in these sections is outstanding. And, and some of the, the, the visuals and the way that's directed. And then it moves into this spirit realm where he is dead, basically, at this point. You are there, Luna Freya is there, uh, and Arden is there and has to be defeated. So all the six gods wind up being there and the other kings. And Noctis kind of harnesses that power he has. And Luna Freya, it's just that callback to that moment where she's dying early on. In the, in the Altissia section, and she has that. She says something to Arden and like gives him this like little power of light, and it's something he didn't expect. And it's like the one moment where he's thrown off in the game. Sure, yeah. And I found that very interesting. And the way that's called back of like you know this power and her sacrifice was going to come back no matter what to him. And then um, they all dissolve, and the ring winds up dissolving, and then it cuts to black. You hear the dialogue from the beginning of the game as they're pushing the car, and it plays "Stand by Me" again, and that's the credits. I thought that was just a perfect way to end a very imperfect video game so sure I, yeah like i really love that specific progression of images and everything building up to it um yeah that hit me pretty hard yeah for me it's like it was just something where like i could recognize how well made it was but like it had no particular emotional impact on me it was just like it was something where it's like there's nothing sort of surprising about the ending not that it was going for something surprising but it was just like it just felt like okay, this is it's Final Fantasy. I don't know, like it's something where that story had devolved into Final Fantasy trope world so much that it was just like it, it was not the game I had wanted it to be. And like I like I was I'm fine with the ending. I think it is well made, but like the fact that nothing was built up substantially to it for me, like meant that it had no real emotional impact. It was just kind of like a well done sequence. Okay. So and then so we already talked about the scene mid credits, which is where you kind of flash back and it's their last camping trip. Yeah. And if you've only heard that in English, you're doing yourself a disservice, I assume, because in Japanese, Noctis, that his acting there is really good yeah. and very raw. Um, but then hey, the hey, you guys are the best. Yeah. It's like not the same thing. It's not you. I love you guys. Those are two different lines. Yeah. Anyway, um, but then I also really like the note, like the grace note of the post credit scene. 
where sure. you see light returning to the world, and that's kind of nice because you see the world being returned, and then you're through the ruined insomnia, although the light is returning, and it kind of goes up to the throne room, and the music it's playing there is this awesome new orchestration of the prelude, not the prelude, but like the opening theme to the first ever Final, Final Fantasy, Fantasy game. One. Yeah, so it's the it's the, the theme that plays when you repair the bridge. Yeah, I really like that game a lot. Yes, well, it's what yeah, it's what starts the story off. Yeah, because Final Fantasy One sort of just starts you. You're there in the world, but then the real story starts when you repair the bridge, right? Um, but it's playing this big, grand version of that. It goes up to the throne. They're clearly they're throwing some kind of funeral for Noctis, and then that it zooms in, and your picture is there that you picked. And then clearly we're picture of Aranea, the true love of his life. That would be a really awkward way to end the game. Yeah, what happens in the scene? Because what happens is then he picks it up, and he and Luna are on the chair here. And for some reason, I've seen people are confused about this scene. It's clearly like it's a spirit kind of thing. Yeah, it's just that they're not saying like literally they came back to life or something. Yeah. So anyway, um, it'd be like someone being really confused at the end of Return of the Jedi. It's like. Why, why are Yoda and Obi-Wan and Darth Vader? Like, they yeah. all died. What, what yeah. is going on? And anyway, so he picks up the picture. He shows it to Luna. Luna winds up taking the pose, and, and it's revealed that's the person who is in the logo for Final Fantasy yeah. XV. There's one thing, I don't like the American box art for this game. The Japanese box art is really good and has the full logo. The American art does not. You can, it's got yeah, a reversible, reversible cover, cover. Yeah. but it doesn't... I don't, a Final Fantasy game should have the actual fucking logo, because that's yeah. a thing. Everyone has that picture on it. And then Noctis gets added to the picture, like which I think is a very interesting way to do that. And then if you ever launch the game again, that's the logo that is on the launch screen, which I think is cool. And that's how it yeah. brings you back to the, like the beginning of the game with the launch screen and everything. And you can load a save from there or something. But uh, I really liked that as like a final grace note to end the the game on. Yeah, yeah. Again, like it's well done, but like if it doesn't, if you didn't have the emotional attachment to the story that they were expecting, it doesn't do much for you. Because especially that was like one where it was like, since I was really put off by the way they treated the Luna Freyna character, like, and I did not, I was not invested in their relationship as characters, like, it just didn't have an impact for me. Okay. So anyway, that's Final Fantasy XV. Yeah. Uh, I liked it. I, I like the game. I don't like the story. Like, okay. It's, 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 again, like, I, I am so conflicted about so much stuff in this game. Like, it's, it's, it's a frustrating thing for me. Okay. Well, you know, it worked for me, and it's a thing where I just, I fell in love with this game really early, and I kind of had some frustrations early on, and I was surprised by how much the more I played those kind of melted away, and even when I can recognize areas where I wish this game was better, just looking at it for what it is, it worked for me really, really powerfully, and I do, I mean this sincerely, when this game was on for me, it hit me harder on just visual and aesthetic and not always like literal narrative, but in terms of how the characters move through this world levels than anything else I've played this year. And I can say, you know, Uncharted 4 clearly has a better story in terms of how it tells that story yes. and cohesion and all of those things. But I don't know, there was just a, a grandiosity to parts of this. And clearly I respond to the Final Fantasy aesthetic more than you do. Yeah, you like not... I was so hoping like all along, like to when like Final Fantasy XV was announced and it looked like the setting and stuff, that they were doing something different. I was so hoping that this game would break the trend of how they handle narrative in like post six Final Fantasies and it did not do that. Like it is the same kind of story they're trying to tell, the same kind of tropes and character devices and like exposition and all that kind of stuff that like really puts me off okay yeah but it worked for me so there you go they should have made a road trip game 
Well, they should have, and I don't... Uh, on some level, because, yes, that would be more powerful, but it's also like... That's a really common thing in video games, too, where sometimes you have a story you want to tell, you develop your gameplay mechanics around that, and something is in there that is clearly the most compelling part, but for whatever reason, that can't be the full game. You know, that's that's also not, like, a new problem that a game is... No, had. but, I, like, often, like... It's still a problem with this game, and I feel like like a lot of games have... Like, video games have started to figure some of that stuff out a lot. That I think, like, Witcher 3 is a fantastic example of a game that, like, does not have that kind of issue in a genre that typically has that issue, you know? Sure. Um, and, you know, it did... The road trip versus the story stuff did make both sides of it more powerful to me by the end. And I understand why yeah, they for did me, for me, like, they, they destroyed each other in some ways. Okay. Or, so... well, no, not each other. Like, the road trip side just sort of, like, overpowered the main plot. It was just like... Fuck you! Like I, I let me get back to the post game. I want to get back in the open world and do stuff. Well, speaking of the post game, yeah. Anything from the post game you want to talk about? Um, Did you do the big platforming dungeon? Is that the secret dungeon? Yeah. I, I know how to get to the secret dungeon, but I haven't done it yet because I kind of I got there and I was like, ah, like like because I think I ran into like a level seventy enemy and I had like one million experience stocked up. I was like, I wonder if I have enough to get to level ninety nine, and I almost did. And I did a little bit of grinding and got there, and then I stopped playing the game. Nice. Um, so yeah, you should do it. It's amazing. Sure. It's frustrating. Like, I found that part, which is, so it's a secret dungeon that does not have enemies. I'm not going to spoil anything beyond that. It's just, it's basically like platforming and puzzle solving in some weird way. Um, it, it to me was like a microcosm of the game, which is that it is wildly ambitious. It is audacious in how it does some things. It is very frustrating in how some things are achieved, but overall, I thought, you know, at its high points in that dungeon, I've never played anything quite like it, and so that was like a little microcosm. Although I say little, it's like six hours long. Oh, jeez. It's really long, unless you, like, know exactly what to do and where to go. I was up until 3 a.m. one morning playing that. Damn. Um, because I just, like, didn't want to let it be me. It's also, like, gruelingly challenging. It is the hardest thing in this game because... The controls were not made for platforming. Okay, um, but that sounds like so much fun. Well, it's it it depends. Like some parts of it um, are affected by that more than others. You know, this is a thing that sometimes games like this do, where you have you know a game made for some system, and then maybe we go off and we want to experiment with a different genre, and the experimentation is cool, but it's not. It was not built from the ground up for that. Yeah. So you might like it, you might not. But, you know, that's one thing I've seen people have very positive reception to, and I definitely shared some of that, even if by the time I went to sleep at 3 in the morning, I wanted to, like, burn my house down because some of it was frustrating. But that's okay. So um, did you, um, have you done any of the, like, like, not the secret dungeon, but, like, the second level dungeon of, like, you know, every, not every, but, like, eight of the dungeons of the games has a secret door in there somewhere that you need a key to get that unlocks basically another smaller dungeon. Have you done any of those? I have done none of those. Okay, because I, I haven't actually finished one by got I I got the key that, so I can go do that okay. if I want to. Like, because it looks like a lot of those are like like the the easiest one is like level fifty five because when you get the key you unlock a quest for all of them and then like the top level one is like I think there's a couple of level ninety nine ones. Yeah, I um. None of that was for trophies, and I was kind of going for the trophies. So, like, I did yeah. the turtle fight, the giant monster turtle. Adamant toys. Adamant toys. Did you do that yet? No. I've, I've like, unlocked it, and I saw it was level 99, and I was like, well, I'm going to bank all my experience and come back here later. Yeah. If Unless you want to get the trophies, maybe don't do that. It took me two hours to beat that thing. It yeah. has five million hit points. And I, that's not an exaggeration. It has five million, 
and your maximum attack is 99.99. Yeah. So do the math. If you were just doing maximum attacks, which obviously you are not just doing maximum attacks, um, yeah, it takes a very long time, specifically because most of what you have to do there is warp strikes. My index finger on my right hand still hurts from that fight. That's one of the only times I have hurt myself playing a video game. Jeez. So, yeah. anyway, uh, unless you want all the trophies, maybe don't do that one. Yeah, um, I, I'm a little bit annoyed by how grindy some of the post-game stuff is, because, like, some of it is fun. Like, I like some of, like, the bosses that, like, because you can fight basically mini-boss enemies in some of the higher-level hunt stuff that we talked about a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. and that's cool, And but, like, getting to access to some of that stuff is a bit... Uh, sometimes kind of arbitrary in some ways and just a bit arduous of yeah. like there's also like there is one there's like a dungeon that is not a hidden secret dungeon but it's a dungeon that is really hard to find that you need to do because it has one of the doors it doesn't have a royal arms or anything in it it's just this fucking random ass dungeon in the middle of nowhere that I just at some point I just looked up online where all the dungeons were because I could not figure out how come this fucking key thing was not unlocking for me I think I've done every dungeon in the game I don't think I did I didn't do like the second levels that you were talking about well, with if the doors, you, but... you will know if you did all the dungeons and you saw all the doors because you will get you will see there is a, a question, like a side quest that unlocks in the uh, hunter outpost that's up by like the Vesper Pool area. Okay. So if you have, if there's a question mark up there, that means you have done all the dungeons in the game, other than the secret dungeon, and seen all the all eight of the doors. I didn't go look at the doors, so I okay. don't know if because I, I I don't know if you have to go up to all the doors and press X because. Like, I think maybe you do, or or maybe you just have to see all those doors. If you have to go up to all those doors and press X, you might be fucked. Because <laughs> yeah. like, luckily, that did not have an issue for me. But when I was looking up how to unlock that stuff, because I was getting annoyed online, because I couldn't find this one fucking dungeon, it seemed like some people discovered this, like, oh, wait, you have to, you can't just clear the dungeon, you have to go see the door. Yeah. That might be, that's, that sounds pretty annoying. Uh, I really like the dungeons in this game. I want to say that. I think some of them are okay. Some like I found some of the dungeons just get kind of obnoxious. Like the uh, the one that just got really fucking annoying is the, it's the hardest one. The Castle one that, tower. that tower, and you have to do the fucking okay. That's the one thing. I don't like. But yeah. I was saying on the whole, I generally really found the dungeons interesting and compelling to go through and fun. Castlemark Tower is an annoying bitch, but other than that one, um, I generally found them very pleasurable to go through and interesting and. Um, varied and different, and I like them. So yeah, I'd like like some of them I liked. Like I didn't like that one. I didn't like the sewer one in particular. It was just annoying because some of the some of the dungeons just have anno- enemies in them that are annoying to fight. And it's like it's one of my issues with the combat system in this game is that when the combat is fine, it's fine. But every once in a while, you'll have like flying enemies or enemies that have used too many status effects or enemies that just seem to have like a million fucking hit points. Even though, like, I just fought something. I'm level ninety nine. I fought something that was like level sixty five bullshit. And it's like it took me like ten fucking minutes to kill this one thing just because it had so much health. And like that stuff is really annoying because it's it's where. It feels like the JRPG roots that they're trying to call back to with some of the combat runs into conflict with the action-y nature of what the combat actually is, and it just ends up feeling like really grindy in ways that frustrate me. And that's yeah. some of the, that's, that's something I'm running in a lot more in the post game than I did earlier on because okay. they throw these like more powerful enemies at you that just have ridiculous hit points and like will like are just constantly casting confusion and shit on you that is just obnoxious. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'm done. I've put the game back on my shelf. I will come back for some of the DLC because I've gotten the season pass and I'm excited to see some of that. But um, yeah, I 
I, I think I've I like I wanted to just get all the trophies, and I've done what I've done. I definitely started getting to the point, which happens in every single open world game if you play it enough, where you start to resent it. But yeah. I do feel like there's a point where that's a me problem because I needed I got unhealthy in how much I was playing this game. And part of that is just I really, 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 really like it. But there's also a point where I had, like, I really probably yesterday should have, like, told myself the trophies aren't this important because I got pretty frustrated with some things. Not to a point where, like, I started hating the game or anything, but just where I started feeling gross and dirty, which happens with some open-world games when you get to that, like, point of grindiness at the end. But, um, you know... Yeah, I, so I've, I've got all the trophies, I've put it back on my shelf, so I feel like I have done Final Fantasy XV to the extent that I'm going to do it until maybe there's DLC and extra story stuff, so. Yeah, I think I'm still going to bang my head against some of the post-game stuff just because, like, I feel like, again, that's the stuff I like in the game, and there's some stuff there. It is frustrating that it's like, it feels like there's some stuff in the post-game that I'm enjoying a lot, and then there's some stuff that is just like, oh, god damn it, why does this fight have to take fucking ten minutes long? Like, I should be breezing through this. So, like, I will see how much... I'm not necessarily... I'm not specifically going to get... Like, or, like, aiming to get all the trophies, though... I'm, I don't, Actually, I think the only ones I need are, like, to level up all the, like, different skills. Like, to, like, get level 10 fishing and beat the Adamant twice. I think that's kind of the only stuff I have left. So. Yeah, probably you could do it. I mean, it's not yeah. that hard. Um, the biggest thing in terms of trophies is something is wrong with survival. That trait that Gladiolus has. Have you leveled yeah. that up yet? Uh, I think I have it at, like, level 9. I'm not sure. Okay. It's really tough to do just through the stream of the game because it counts your steps is how that's done. And I'd look this up because I was playing with something that's not... It's the only thing that's not going up. And what is it? It's your steps. So unless you, like, never used the car or never used chocobos, you're never going to get that up. And everyone's solution was you rubber band the sticks together on the controllers and leave it and it'll do it. And I did have to do that. And I have never done something like that in a game. And that should tell you how much I liked this game that I was willing just for that last trophy to... I didn't even have a rubber band. I had to get, like, a hairnet and rub it, wrap it around the controller sticks and it would be in Hammerhead is where you can do it best. And Noctis will just run in circles. And if you let that go for a few hours, you can get that to level up. Nice. So, yeah. Um, it's also, you have your PS4 in an open-air environment. Yeah. I have mine in a cabinet, so it was like, it got hot when I was doing that. But it's okay. The PS4 can take it. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. No. It was fine. I mean, I there ne- are I, limits. I never left it on overnight, and I would recommend you not do that if you have a launch PS4, because the launch PS4, it runs hot uh, and loud, and I don't know if I completely trust it with yeah. that, unless you have it in like a completely open-air environment. Uh, I was not, I was, I, you do not have to leave it overnight. People have been saying that. You can leave it for, like, I probably had to have that going for maybe four hours total, and I did it over a couple of times. Um, so, like, just like last night when I went to see that Voyage of Time movie, I rubber banded the controllers and I left, and when I came back, he'd gone from eight to nine. Or okay. actually, eight to nine and a half. So, it was okay. And then I did one more today where I did that for an hour, and then I just turned on my Xbox and played some Skyrim. And, uh, yeah. And then you, then you went, because I was about to say the only game I've done that in is Skyrim, where a <laughs> trick in Skyrim to get your sneak up to level 100 is to find a person who is sleeping, and there are some different areas in the game where characters are basically sleeping forever, and you go stand on them, go to sneak, and just rubber band into a wall, and eventually <laughs> your sneak is 100. So, you could have had that going on in Final Fantasy XV, loaded up Skyrim, done that, and then gone to, like, see your movie or whatever, and come back and be like, look at all, I've, I've got level 10 survival, I can sneak past anything in Skyrim. Like, I don't even have to play video games and I'm great at them. Yeah, I would expect they're going to patch the survival thing because, like, it is 
so out there. Like, everything else is reasonable. The cooking, the photography, and the fishing you have to do a little more. But the fishing is so hands-on. Yeah. But I don't think it's unreasonable how much fishing you have to do to get level yeah, 10. Yeah, I haven't done the last fishing quest yet to get, like, the super mega fish or whatever at the pier. I can I, never find that. Anyway, yeah. I've, I've, I've just assumed that in the process of trying to get that, I will probably get my fishing up to level 10. Because will. getting the gar or whatever that other fish is called to get to that point... That was so fucking annoying. And I, never, I, I, got, I got like from level fishing from like two to five just trying to fucking finish that one quest. It was like a thorn in my paw for so long. It's really tough, but yeah. So anyway, uh, what else? Anything else we want to say about Final Fantasy 15? It's a weird game. Yeah. It's it is a, a weird it's game. It's a weird fucking game. I, like, I'm going to have a weird time putting my top ten list together of like, what to do with that one. Um, yeah, I mean, I really love this game, and it's I, like, I, I'm not sure where I'm going to put it, but I have some good ideas. I actually have at this point, because of Final Fantasy XV feels like the missing piece on my top ten, I have a draft of my top ten okay. from ten to one, and I'm really happy with it, and I have at least two or three more games to play yeah, this year, too. and I'm like, fuck Fuckity fuck. Unless nothing I play is is worth that top ten placement. Which doesn't mean it's a bad game. I have some incredible cuts from my ten right now in terms of, like, I can't believe I didn't find room for that. But there's only ten titles, and I played, like, 40 games this yeah, year. Yeah, so. I haven't, like, looked at it seriously to try to actually formulate the list. Like, every once in a while, I'll glance at it to, like, put on a game I played and be like, oh, boy. And, like, kind of do the mental math in my head and be like... Fuck! So like, some of these, like a lot of these games are not going to make it because there's more than ten games on this like piece of paper. Yeah, so it's gonna be interesting. I mean, I think it's funny. You and I obviously played a lot of the same games this year yeah. because we talk about them on here. But we're gonna want. I think we're gonna have very different lists. Yeah, yeah. I know. At least three games both you and I are going to have in prominent positions. Sure, yeah, definitely. But other than those, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one when we do that, and I'm not sure when we're going to do that. But I feel like. Now that this one's over, Final Fantasy fifteen, I don't think either of us have anything huge to play. Left. Yeah, I, I'm going to play The Last Guardian, so okay. I want to play that, and I want to play Thumper for sure. Okay. And th- those are the two that like I have my eyes on that I definitely want to play. There's let- obviously a couple of other games that I kind of want to play, but like I don't know if I'll have time to. Let me know how you like The Last Guardian. Yeah, I don't have, I haven't gotten that yet. I don't know if I'm going to play that because I just don't know if it's my kind of thing. Um, but I'm going to play Infinite Warfare. I have that. I'm going to play Mario Run, which is a different kind of thing. I might play the Titanfall 2 campaign. Because sure, I yeah. feel like that's five hours long. I can knock yeah, that yeah, out. Yeah, you can definitely knock that out but, in a night uh, or two. Yeah, we'll see. So, almost done. We'll probably do that you know, at last week of this year, early you know, January, something like that. But that'll be a fun topic to do. I'm excited. Yeah, this is like the most competitive year for games that we have done since we started this podcast. Like yeah. it, is, it is pretty insane. And even something like Final Fantasy XV is so interesting to me where I really love it so much. And I know you love parts of it and have problems with parts of it. But that's even the kind of thing where, like, even if we think you think that's a messy game, that's, like, a fascinatingly messy game oh, yeah, in a way no, that yeah. only 2016 could deliver, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, it, this, this is a year that, like, the defining trend of games for me, of, like, looking at... Not, like, specifically, like, my games that I'm aiming for, like, these are probably my top five or... Like, including Persona 5, which is not really part of the list, but, like, is part of this trend. It's like, this is a year of games that, like, even if it's part of a long-running franchise, like, defies so many expectations from Hitman, Uncharted 4, Doom, Persona 5, like, Final Fantasy 15, all these games. It's just, like, some of them have been in development for fucking ever. Some of them just came out of nowhere. But it's, like, these are games that just, like, I would have never expected this game to be the way it is. 
and whether for good or ill, like they are incredibly fascinating and I'm sure are going to be immensely uh, influential games in a number of different ways going forward. And that's one of the things that's most exciting about this year is that yeah. it's not just a bunch of good games. It's a bunch of games like Hitman that will like innovate an entire like business strategy for delivering video games or it'll be like Uncharted 4 that like deconstructs its own genre and is like this weird, amazing or, example of AAA games that you don't ever really get. Or whether you like how it all shook out, Final Fantasy 15 takes the JRPG to a new place. Sure, yeah. And I'm really curious to see what its impact is going to be going forward. Yeah. You know? Um, because... Fishing minigames and everything going forward. But it, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, it is, it's a J, it is very much a JRPG. It keeps yeah. that part of its identity, but it is an evolution on that. And whether you think every part of that evolution is successful or not, I hope we can all recognize that ambition and that that's a really interesting thing that deserves attention and study. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, so, in, the, and you're in right. some I mean, very similar ways that Metal Gear Solid Five did. Sure. But, like, I, I look at my top six or something, and yeah. you're right. Every single one of those games is, like, something where it's, like, this is a long-running genre, and this game blew it up. Yeah. In a way that I found fascinating. Like, it is kind of the through line. Um so I'm very excited. I'm going to say one more thing about Final Fantasy XV. Okay. Just for people on the podcast who are interested, I think this is a cool thing. Um, the soundtrack is coming out at the end of December. Great. Which I'm excited for, because fuck that soundtrack. It's really good soundtrack. Really good soundtrack. Uh, I had it on pre-order from Amazon Japan in just the normal CD version, which is about $40 if you convert the yen to dollars, although we're really powerful against the yen at the moment. Yeah. Which is going to be great, because come January 20th, that's ending. Uh, anyway, <laughs> when we start our trade war. But anyway, um, so it's, it's, it's a good price. You can get it for CDs. They also also have a Blu-ray version of the soundtrack, and at first I kind of ignored right. that because that's something Square Enix does with a lot of their music, and I'm not even sure what to do with that. But the one they're doing for Final Fantasy 15 is pretty cool. So if you get the limited edition soundtrack, which is more expensive, it's like eighty dollars, but you get a Blu-ray with the entire soundtrack. So what you would get on those four CDs, everything there, plus a couple bonus tracks on a Blu-ray. So it's got a high-resolution audio, plus it's just got the MP3s on there. So if you have a Blu-ray drive, and that even includes things like the PS3. I don't know if the four can do it because its media things are different but the ps3 can just take those mp3 files off for yeah, you yeah um it has that it has another disc with every track that you can get for the car in the game oh that's awesome that's on it's over 250 tracks they're saying Jesus. so i'm definitely getting that i'm getting that limited edition because i fucking want that disc and then it's got a third seat just a cd with piano arrangements of a bunch of songs and Amazon Japan has a bonus with all the music from the different trailers for this game, which oh, often Jesus. had special soundtrack presentations yeah. by different groups like the video game orchestra. So it's kind of pricey. Um, my order comes out with shipping to about $90 US, okay, but it's yeah. worth it to me Like for that kind of soundtrack. That's pretty fucking cool. And like if you have a PS3 or something, my understanding is you can just pull those files off. And of course, if you have a PC with a Blu-ray drive, uh, which my brother does, so I'm just going to probably have him rip them for me, but... That's kind of cool. So, and hey, if you also have the Final Fantasy X soundtrack, then you can get two Xanarkin on that too. Sure yeah, like I have a number of those, but I'm kind of excited to have that CD disc because the or the, the the card disc because there's a bunch of Final Fantasy soundtracks that I'm not as familiar with yeah. and I don't own, and they're on there, so that's cool. But yeah, yeah. So anyway, but two Xanarkin is it? It's Arcane is not. God for knows reason. whatever reason. There's yeah. like an, an arrangement of it in one of the Dissidia soundtracks that was like when I needed some Tuzanarkin, I was like, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll fucking dig into the Dissidia soundtrack and find it. But I love that they're putting that Blu-ray disc together with because that's going to be an awesome compendium of, you know, Final Fantasy has like the best soundtrack record in gaming in yeah. terms of the length that's been around and the number of soundtracks. So that's pretty neat. Yeah. And hey, if nothing else, Final Fantasy XV hopefully helped a lot of people realize that Final Fantasy III has some of the best music ever, and yes. don't ignore it. 
It's yes. It, I mean, it, the, it's only bested by the Final Fantasy One soundtrack, which is the original and the undisputed champion, and, and for me of. But there's there's Final there's Fantasy not a lot of bad choices yeah, among no. the Uematsu soundtracks. They're pretty good. So anyway, that's it for this week. Not sure what we're going to be talking about next week. Um, I'll have played Infinite Warfare, so we can go back on that one yeah, if we well, want. I'll, and maybe, maybe I'll have played Last Guardian. I don't know how much yeah. time I'll have. I kind of that game is. I'm so fascinated to play Infinite Warfare because. Boy, is this narrative being written that that game is like a massive failure critically and commercially and everything. And I feel like that's maybe not the case, given what you and other people have told me yeah, about it. I, so. I'm really excited for you to play that game because I do I want to talk about the story mm-hmm. in depth because there's some stuff that they... Because just like almost more than anything because I think that story has been really sort of like underserved critically mm-hmm. because people have just sort of brushed it off. It's Call of Duty and like, you know, maybe I'm fucking crazy. Maybe I'm the only person that sees this. Maybe you'll be like, no, it's just a normal Call of Duty story, Sean. But I think it's really fucking good. I want okay. to talk about it. So that'll be next week and uh, we'll see you then. Yeah, I look forward to reconvening 12 years from now when Final Fantasy 16 comes out. <laughs> <laughs>